Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Counselor. Oh my God, scary. <laughs> Did you notice that I'm dressed in my best Katie attire? In fact, there's a shirt that he wears that like looks pretty similar to this in the movie. Mm. In the scene where he's at, at like the diner and Joe Don Baker. Let's save it for the pod. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Cinema possessed, we are talking Scorsese's Cape Fear. <laughs> the last time that we saw this picture, Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum were sparring. Mm. But now we're in the 1990s and Nick Nolte and De Niro are starring. I thought you told me Steven Spielberg was on to direct it. Was there something I missed? It turns out he gave it to Scorsese and he traded it for Schindler's List. But any fool could see that Hitchcock is inspiration number one. Marty's giving you everything. All that film can bring with Cape Fear Matte paintings, Dutch angles, swish pans and zoom Split diopter shots too, it's all here Juliet Lewis and Jessica Lang At the top of their games, acting fierce Here on Cinema Possessed, we are talking Scorsese's Cape Fear. Counselor! Counselor! Come out, come out wherever you are. 
Sounds like Jim Carrey from The Cable Guy. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Cinema Possessed Podcast. My name is Jack Bishop. And I'm Justin Nation. And with us, as always, is the Max Katie of this podcast, Corey Clifford. You better watch out. You do hold a grudge more than anyone I've ever known. More than even Justin? Because I feel like Second we Second only to we... Justin. <laughs> what kind of grudge do I hold? Give me one example of something I've never let go of. <laughs> Corey has literally outright told me that she would like do Max Katie shit to me if I oh ever my God. fucked I would around Max on her. For sure, no doubt about it. I was taking notes. Maybe like a week ago, you were like, you know, mm-hmm. I would like put a dead animal in your... Well, I told Jack, I told Jack that if he ever like cheated on me or something like that, what I would do is that anytime for the rest of his life that something didn't go well, I want him to have a feeling in the back of his mind. Like if you came mm-hmm. over and you were like, Jack, why are there so many flies like in your house? Like it smells. And Jack, this is like three years after we've broken up. Jack's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's Corey. And you are, would be like, you're insane, Jack. But it was me. I've planted mm-hmm. something in this house. And just little, mm-hmm. little tiny things like that. Mm-hmm. Would, would you define that as abusive? Of no, course. because it hasn't you happened. Would. It hasn't happened. It's you just in my brain. You define it as abusive. It's just in my brain. It's just, you know, you got to have a backup plan. Yeah. Well, you know, you've been together for so long mm-hmm. that if Jack were to cheat exactly. on you, it would be 18 years, expert. Jack. Yeah. You locked me in this relationship for 18 years. 18 years, years counselor. <laughs> Keep, keep laughing. Ooh, keep laughing. Dude, I'm scared. Uh, and each week we take a close look at one film in our combined DVD and Blu-ray collections and discuss what it was about it that originally possessed us to want to possess it. We'll debate whether or not the film still holds that power over us today. And in the end, we'll decide once and for all if it deserves to keep its place on the shelf or be chopped up into 52 pieces. Was that a good joke when she told it? No. Nah. No. The funniest part of the joke was when she said, what did you do to go to jail? And, and he was like, I chopped up my wife into 52 pieces. Yeah. He's that got was, the charm he in got that the, scene. Oh my, he has the charm in the mm. whole movie until he goes pure But psychopath. she steals the show in that scene to me. Like oh, She steals yeah, basically so every scene that she's in, Ileana Douglas. She was incredible. Uh, Justin, let the people know what movie we're talking about today today we're talking about a 1991 jammer named cape fear he paid his debt to society what was he in prison for have you been following a small town everywhere you turn i guess we're gonna run into each other (laughs) dad you should have just punched him out yeah you know how to fight there do you do that for a living this guy uh he threatened you he's clever so that the law can't touch him. Now. Come out, come out, wherever you are. I want you the hell off my property. He's paying back his lawyer. You have a daughter around 16? 16? What? We got the psychopath in our faces. Evening, ladies. I mean, who knows what's true and what isn't? From director Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Nick Nolte, Jessica Lange, Cape Fear, rated R. Hmm. 
Well, as always, trailers have gotten a lot better since 1991. Yeah. Trailers better, movies worse. We've gotten to an age now where you can't even trust trailers because trailers are too good. And you have to really decode them to understand if the movie's going to actually be good or not. Well, it used to be uh, you saw a bad trailer that probably meant the movie was going to be bad. But now you see a good trailer and light bulbs are going off with me because I'm thinking maybe this is a red herring. Mm -hmm, Maybe. Yeah. Maybe they put more money into the marketing in the trailer yeah. than yeah. they did the actual film. Mm-hmm. Trailers they, also give away everything now, though. It's very strange. Like, they show the whole movie. Yeah, certain types of movies. I think, like, rom-com trailers. They show the end. They give away everything. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Would you prefer if every trailer was not a trailer, but just a teaser? Like an art, yes. like a so- Soderbergh. What, Absolutely. You know, maybe, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the best ones are that. And yeah. if you, if you oh, get, I love like a, a trailer, a though, but I love a trailer. I can't deny. Well, I what mean, a, maybe the trailer comes out after the movie's already been out. So that way you still get people like Corey still get their trailer. Sure. But you're not using that to decide if you should go see the movie. Yeah. Oftentimes it, it starts with a teaser trailer that is usually just like music and images, maybe a little bit of sound bites here and there. And that's when people get kind of like excited Mm -hmm. that's always when people are like "Ooh!" and then they release the actual trailer and that's when people start saying i don't know about this movie yeah you know what i mean and honestly it would be better business if they just left it at the teasers because it does get the job done in a way that doesn't allow you to know what you're getting into as much i uh so i'm in vermont right now and there's only there's no amc there's only one local theater they only show two movies at a time uh, it's like one of those theaters that has food and drinks while mm-hmm. you while you watch the movie, but it's it's like a small town theater. So I got uh, somebody gave me a pro tip that I have to order the tickets like a month in advance. What? Oh wow! Because they sell like, the out? whole the whole town goes and oh, you just can't get in. Kind of like that. Yeah, you got a culture yeah. there that is going to buy out the theater. I got people here who are excited about the pod and who are excited about movies. We have a projector and a couple of people have expressed that they wanted to do movie nights. So when I told them about the pod, they were like, ooh, let's let's do your um, movie schedule. Yes, please do that. Let's get some new listeners. I've never seen Cape Fear in a movie theater before, and I would love to see it with a crowd. And just laugh like Robert De Niro watching mm-hmm. problems. Sit right up front. Oh, <laughs> Light up Smoking a cigar. His laugh is the scariest part yeah. of the movie. I think this movie, I'm just going to go right out and say, this is pure cinema to me. To be, and I understand that not every movie needs to be like this movie, and it shouldn't. But when a movie comes along like this, it's just like, it's magic to me. I think I was going to say... I think that this is the perfect encapsulation of a Jack and Justin movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Like, I agree. It's so Jack and Justin in every way yeah, possible. 100%. From the music to, <laughs> to the, the performances, to the performances, yeah. the casting. I would it, maybe argue that in a way this movie birthed us too because I have yeah. a vivid memory of you and I early days of our friendship watching this movie together at like 2 a.m. Uh-huh. and just having the time of our lives and coming out of it inspired and then it just became the lexicon for the way we like wanted to make stuff yeah my uh, my experience was like this is this is the golden era of being friends with jack and jack saying have you seen cape fear and me saying no 
and him saying, you haven't seen Cape Fear? <laughs> you gotta, man, you gotta see it. And it's like that era is gone of like you, of, of there's like not much left yeah. that's like classic, like <laughs> yeah. how have you not seen this movie yet? Yeah. And and I just remember back to back to back there being all these movies like Raging Bull hadn't seen it, Cape Fear hadn't seen it. Sling Blade was one of those, I think. Sling Blade, yeah. Uh, regular Blade. No, just kidding. Um, so yeah, I got I got lucky enough to be introduced to it by you, and I. But you knew my taste. You knew what. Oh, I, I would knew you would love it. I was to. like, we have yeah. to watch it right now. You'll be obsessed mm. with it. Well, I think that this movie has a language to it that when you and I watched it. We were like, oh, this encapsulates our taste, mm-hmm. our eye, our language is all from the world of movies like Cape Fear. Not entirely. That's yeah. not entirely true anymore, obviously. But at the time, it felt like, oh, we're bad taste, the production company, um, because we see good things in what other people see as bad. And yeah. I think a lot of people might look at Cape Fear today and look at some of those exaggerated camera movements mm-hmm. or performance or music and some of the more cartoony elements towards the end of the film and say, this this is silly. They absolutely do. But I, I think you and I looked at it and we're like, how can we bring this into our work in a way that doesn't feel silly um, mm-hmm. or like parody, but feels like we're able to take the best of those elements into something that feels a little bit more modern. Yeah, I think what I love so much about the movie and what I've always loved about it is that you get everything you come to like a thriller for. You know, there's the term elevated horror. Nowadays, it sort of means like horror that is... Taking itself seriously. Taking itself very seriously and subverting the tropes. I I don't want to be misrepresented. I like a lot of the elevated horror, but it is horror that is so subverting the tropes of horror that oftentimes people find them kind of boring because they don't deliver on the the things you go to a horror movie to see. And they're like almost proud of that. I think a lot of modern day elevated horror filmmakers, they're in the horror genre, but they're doing everything they can to let you know that they're not just horror filmmakers. And I think what I love about Cape Fear is that Scorsese is like, no, I'm going to give you the tropes of this genre. I'm going to hit them as hard as I can, but I'm going to elevate them while still doing them. I'm going to like inject them with themes and ideas and layers, but I'm still going to give you the scary scenes and the excitement that you expect. This movie has also to another element that you and I like in our horror, which is comedy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. lots of it, like mm-hmm. even even moments that are not really overtly funny become funny with the editing and the sound design. Like yeah. there's this moment where they're all sitting around the table. <laughs> I literally I swear to God, I rewound it over <laughs> 10 times. And Nick Nolte is in the middle of um, saying how like everything's OK. Now. Yeah, they have nothing to worry about anymore. <laughs> nothing to worry about. And as he's speaking, the phone rings. And I watch this back because the cutting was so surprising. But he jumps in the middle of his sentence. Mm-hmm. It cuts to Danielle. And uh, it cuts to Jessica Lange. And those cuts are like two frames each. Yeah. You barely even see them. And then the next cut, he's at the phone. Hello. And the camera (laughs) pants up to him. And it's just moments like that. 
Yeah, the editing in this movie is such a standout factor mm-hmm. in it. Thelma Schoonmaker is, is Scorsese's longtime editor. She edits everything he's ever done. Does she still edit? She still stuff? does. Wow. They're both still attached to the I mean, like they are a duo, and he has said that many times. And you know, Tarantino had that relationship with his editor, Sally Minke, and I noticed a difference when she died. They were edited differently and they felt different. Fred Raskin is his new editor editor, and he's good. And I think Tarantino and Fred have found something together, but that first outing, I believe, was Django Unchained. And I could feel the missing Sally. Do you think Sally Menke ever told him, I will haunt you like Cape Fear if you <laughs> Probably. ever like, Probably get another one? If you ever get another editor. Jack, if Tarantino um, came to you, mm-hmm. <laughs> he sees your stuff and he's like, I want you to be my new editor, but you, you, got, you have to commit your life to being my editor. Oh, what are you I don't doing? think I could do that, but I would love to edit one of his movies, but that's too hard of What a, if he was like, you have, to commit, you, have to compete, you have to commit yourself, you can't do anything else while I'm shooting my movie and editing uh, my movie. Okay, sure, fine. If I got to like, you know, commit myself fully to your project, but when mm-hmm. the project's done, then I Then you can go back. Yeah, what if he said, you can direct whatever you want, you could continue <laughs> doing everything as normal, uh-huh. I need you to be my editor, but but you have to leave Corey. <laughs> Do I get to be the lead of the movie? The lead of the movies that Tarantino And is this directs? because he's in love with Corey? <laughs> oh, I see. I mean, you're Plot yes-handing twist. me. Wow. I don't know. What I would do is I would wait till Corey falls asleep, and I would go and I would mutilate her feet, and then he would no longer be oh, attracted. God. God. <laughs> Corey, you can, be the lead, you can be the lead of, of his movies if, if you leave Jack. Yeah, bye, Jack. God, See you later. This is weird. This is like a Twilight Zone episode. The Tarantino devil. is a psychopath in this story. Well, speaking of psychopaths, we are in villain month. And uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, personally, I think Max Katie is my favorite villain of all time. I could agree with that. He's definitely one of the scariest and he's one of the scariest because he's also the most charming. And like in a lot of this movies, you're a lot of this movie, you're taken with him. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes him even spookier. Max Cady as played by De Niro. Yes. Well, yeah. but I mean, I will say across the board, Max Cady just as a character from the from the book, from the original 1962 movie to De Niro's performance of him. I think he's scary in all of them. Is he as charming in the other ones? Yeah. I would say the lead, he's, so we can say now, I read the the book you did as well, right, Justin? Mm-hmm. I did not get a chance to watch the Robert Mitchum one again, but I've seen it before. I've seen it a couple times. I would say Max Cady is least charming in the book because in the book, he's a little bit more of a specter. He's not, you don't quite get as many scenes with him in the book because the book is mostly told through Sam's mm-hmm. POV. So he is a lurking presence in the book more so than he is in either of the films. But he's pretty charming in um, the 1962 version too. I think Mitchum is, has got his charms. Let's talk De Niro. What are, Incredible. Are yeah. you kidding me? This man is like, it's so crazy to go back and watch all of these early earlier like De Niro performances. I guess this isn't even... This is, I mean, this, but is, this is like... like in. Sure, later but, career technically, not his latest, you know. Yes, but I guess I just mean like from a modern to 2023 perspective, because yeah. mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my god, like 
everybody is just trying to be De Niro or Pacino. And like, yes, that's always been the case. But I see so much of this performance at people who I'm in acting class with or things I'm seeing on TV or in movies now. It's like they're trying to emulate that, which 100% I understand why, because he's brilliant. Like I'm watching this being like, I want to be able to do a performance like this. And I honestly think that about all of the actors in this movie, like Jessica Lange, I think is incredible. Yeah, across the board, every actor Um, is amazing in this movie. But yeah, specifically De Niro. I mean, he just has that thing. Like you could just, just him walking in this movie is like what and it's so, so layered. It's so different than every other one of his performance, including like his psychopath characters. This is so different than Travis Bickle. This is like so different than Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull. Yeah. He has never done anything like this before or since, honestly. He's never put on such a weird accent before. He's never been so cool. Like, I know that's the we- cool. the weirdest part about this movie is like take out the fact that he is a psychopath. A rapist and a murderer. Uh, yes. His look incredible. Iconic. His the way he walks, the car he drives, his muscles, the way his he body. yes, his body, he's hot as hell. He's a snackety snack. And just the way that he like talks to people too. Like you immediately get why Juliette Lewis is so taken by right. him because you just would be. It's mm-hmm. wild. Yeah. What is your feelings on it? I think he sucks. <laughs> you lie. Of course. Come on. You know. I mean, people, his performance is one of the things that people think is like too insane. campy about this movie. Very much like um, Pacino and Scarface or Jack Nicholson in The Shining, where it's a, it's a role that undeniably iconic, but a lot of people try to point to and make fun of it. But it's like, you can't. It's just... But these are also all roles and characters that people are trying to copy constantly. It's true. Yeah, that's because what it, yeah. Of that. yeah. They become instantly iconic yeah. and like you can't it, it influences people because they're so bold and over the top. Well, well more importantly, you just being the resident southern experts like do you do you incredible, think incredible. He does well, a good here's job. what I'm going to yeah. say. I'm not going to argue that his accent is authentic. It doesn't but matter. It doesn't though. it literally doesn't yeah. matter because mm-hmm. it he he works it so well. He owns it in such a way that it does not matter. Because it's so specific. Because it's not trying exactly. to just be like a Southern accent. It is so specific to him. It makes it so believable. Because if you go down to the down south, like there are people that you that talk to you and you're like, this is the most insane voice I've ever heard. You cannot be a real person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they are. Because it's so specific to who they are. And yeah. because that's what he's doing, he's yeah. like made such a bold choice. You're not even thinking about like, this is not yeah. right. Well, this isn't whatever. the first time we've heard of somebody like rec- having uh, real Southerners record lines with a mm, voice yeah. recorder. Clooney. And then playing them back so he can get good at the accent. But I, I think- well, De Niro he, did that? Yeah. He, he's scariest to me when he switches between characters. Like, yes. for example, the first time that he encounters Sam Bowden, he pulls the keys out of the car. He's kind of, you know, over him in this menacing way, but he's talking to him in kind of like a friendly manner, you know, mm-hmm. like, and he has a, a voice, a character, and it's all pretty. Yeah, he's Mr. Cool. He's Mr. Cool. And then as he walks away under his breath, he oh. says something like, you're you're going to learn about loss, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn about loss. He does it in a, a the real, that's like the real monster uh-huh. underneath. Yeah. And I thought that was brilliant. And I mm-hmm. wanted to see more of that in the movie. I think a few it happens a few other times. But yeah, it happens well, a couple of times with Julia the women, Lewis too. Scene, yes. Yeah, he, he's totally like 
mm-hmm. code switching for her. But then yeah. he also does it with um, Jessica Lang when he pulls up in the car mm-hmm. and is like, your dog dropped this. Yeah. Like the way that you see mm-hmm. him switch between trying to trick her and then also revealing yeah. who he is. It's like, he can only Ugh. hold it for so long yes. before yes. The, the demon comes out. Right. Interesting to see the types of personalities that are drawn to the different roles, like all, mm-hmm. all the the ways in which an actor would want to play Max Katie over Sam Bowden, just because mm-hmm. it's like, that's going to be the Oscar role. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. even though uh, Sam Bowden is the hero as so to speak on uh, the main character, Max Katie is so much more interesting. So mm-hmm. more you know, fun, you have yeah. people like Harrison Ford wanting to p- play Max Katie, which I can't even imagine. Cannot no. at all. Because Scorsese wanted him for Sam Bowden, which I think could have been an interesting been a, choice. He could yes. have been great. Yeah. But he was like, oh, I don't want to do the movie unless I'm Max Katie. I'm I'm glad that that Nick Nolte got it. I think. Oh my god, me, me too. too. Because I think Nick Perfect. Nolte has the a little unhingedness in him more. Like yes. Harrison Ford is just kind of to me pure. I don't know Americana, handsome leading man. Yeah. Whereas Nick Nolte has a little bit of the like. Skeezy quality. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and an everyman quality, too. I mean, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but he gives me big Paul Clifford vibes. I knew you were going to say that, but we've always said that about (laughs) Nick Nolte. And it has nothing to do with your dad's character in any way. It's it's literally like the voice, the mannerisms. He feels real. There's nobody like Nick Nolte. Yeah. Uh, as an actor, except for your dad. <laughs> and I bet you they would be fast friends. Yeah. On a scale of one to 10, how uh, 10 being the most garbled, what? how would you <laughs> rate his voice at this point in his career? I mean, he's getting there, man. Oh, like it's, it's so it's good, gravelly, but in the it. best way. Like Katie's dangerous, and it just gets more gravelly as he gets like more upset about. And I think things. that's what yeah. gives you the Paul Clifford vibe yeah. the most is Nick Nolte's voice. Well, honestly, though, there's <laughs> yeah. something in the eyes. There's something in the way he moves. It's it's all there. They are of the same ilk of person. <laughs> there's uh, one scene in particular I have in my mind's eye that makes me laugh, and also a little bit of that gravelly voice comes out do you uh-huh. know what that scene is no <laughs> it's a quick cutaway it's like a, it's like a funny jump cut hmm oh is it when when um he said he tells lee like we gotta be a team on this thing lee <laughs> and then all of a sudden it cuts to him like on the couch talking to himself and he's like yeah that's great i think robert mitchum is good as max katie too um people credit mitchum for um his character his portrayal of max katie as being kind of the prototype for what we now know as like the modern day slasher the Jason Voorhees, the Freddy Kruegers, the Michael Myers. Um, and he had kind of also done that a little bit in Night of the Hunter. And I feel like Scorsese and De Niro kind of took aspects of his character in Night of the Hunter and aspects of his Max Cady and kind of blended them together because Night of the Hunter, he's got that like Bible thumping, you know, tattooed, a sinister quality to him that it feels like that comes straight out of Night of the Hunter for Max Cady. Yeah, uh, Peck is a little underwhelming in that movie to me. Yeah, he's not bad, but it's it's an upgrade in all. So I remember people used to say like, well, De Niro's better than Mitchum, but Nolte's not as good as Peck. Oh uh, my that's just God, no way. Nobody mentioned Juliette Lewis. I was just about oh, to say, yeah. she's the only one who got nominated for an Oscar, right? No, actually, De Niro hey. got nominated. Oh, he did. He as did. Well. De Niro and Juliette Lewis both got nominated. Yeah. 
But this is her like first big role, she's right? She's so mm-hmm. good in this movie. She's so sweet. She was 18 so when she innocent. made the movie. Like, uh, you just believe her immediately. They looked at 500 girls. She was the first girl they looked at. Wow. Um, and they said that that rarely ever happens with the first person you look at ends up getting the part. Beat out Drew Barrymore. I could see Drew Barrymore. Drew biffed it, apparently. Yeah. Beat out Reese Witherspoon. Reese biffed it. Yeah. She got too nervous in front of De Niro. I could see either of them, too, playing this role. But Juliette Lewis is always good, and she's so interesting and unique, and I think captures that... Um, she has a babiness about her that is so... I don't know how to describe it besides that classic Britney Spears song, um, I'm Not a Girl... <laughs> Not yet a woman. And that is her perfectly in this movie. Yeah, she was nominated for an Oscar. She lost out to Mercedes Rule from The Fisher King. And Who did um, De Niro lose out to? Anthony Hopkins, Silence of the Lambs. Wow. What a fucking year. Two, what a year for villains. Two psychopaths <laughs> yeah. nominated. Head and, to head. Um, yeah. Although, and honestly, although Max Cady would would kill him. Oh, for oh, sure. No for doubt. Sure. No doubt. But that's cool. It's like I bet you that was a fun year for horror heads. Yeah. To um to 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 be like, wow, the Academy Awards are nominating like some some pretty intense horror stuff. Although I read in the on on IMDb, so who knows if this is true, but it said that um Fangoria magazine wanted to cover both Cape Fear and Silence of the Lambs, but none of the filmmakers or the studios wanted these movies to be considered horror, so they wouldn't allow Fangoria on set to cover either of these movies. Wow. Which we've talked about this in the past, about this sort of stigma against horror that used to be around that we're we're totally out of now. Well, it's one thing to not want to call your movie horror. Take the fucking interview. <laughs> Let, it, who cares that it's a horror magazine they want to interview you learn about your movie yeah. tell them we don't consider this a horror movie but mm-hmm. you know yeah i don't i don't understand being afraid of the publicity yeah i think this movie is is especially interesting to me in two distinct ways mm-hmm. one i think it's the rare remake that's mm-hmm. better than yep. the original totally mm-hmm. agree i still think the original is good the original is great I don't I don't think it replaces the original. Yeah. I think it lives side by side. Yeah. And then you have Cape Fear 1991 as an adaptation of of the 60s Cape Fear, which is an adaptation of the book which mm-hmm. is not called Cape Fear, it's called The Executioners, and the all of them have distinct differences between them, but the Cape Fear 91 remake is interesting because it's it's a remake of a remake of an adaptation, and the Gregory Peck version does a lot of different things than the book, uh, including that whole boat sequence at mm-hmm. the end that was not, not in, the, in book, the book that was yeah. made mm-hmm. just for that movie. Re- Cape him Fear renaming. is never uttered once in the book, yet yeah. now they've retitled the book Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't even mm-hmm. find it as the executioners anymore, yeah. but it's so weird that they ne- it's never once mentioned. In fact, that was Gregory Peck's idea, was to call the, the movie Cape Fear. Right. And using reusing actors, reusing score, you know, albeit with a different composer, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it does feel like Scorsese's love letter to that oh, movie yeah. and to Hitchcock and that genre. It's really fun. Yeah. You it's don't tech- see that often. Mm-mm. No. And it's like that's that's why it's elevated to me is is it's done by a master who is so aware of film history and so aware of what he's homaging and what he's paying tribute to. Uh, but also is a filmmaker that has strong themes of his own that are completely 
injected into this movie. This movie has all the classic Scorsese themes and you listen to the backstory of it and he made sure of that. Like, as you heard in the song, began as a Steven Spielberg project. He was set to direct this. Scorsese, in fact, was set to direct Schindler's List. So wild. I guess you had heard that that Spielberg found Cape Fear to be depressing as he as he was developing it, right? <laughs> it was not Schindler's List. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I think it was just so much more connected to the material of Schindler's sure, List yeah. versus just a a, a a a psychopath tormenting a family. Yeah, but. Yeah, it's a really hard quote to wrap your head around considering how <laughs> horrific Schindler's right, List is. Right. I could see Spielberg's version of this movie a little bit. I don't think it would be nearly as edgy, and I don't think it would be nearly as violent, but it's about a family, and they're suburban, and he knows how to do kind of a stalker, you know, menace villain with movies like Jaws and Duel. I could imagine a good version of this movie that Spielberg made, and I could imagine a great version of Schindler's List that Scorsese made. And I think at the time, you would maybe think Scorsese would be the one to do Schindler's List, and Spielberg would be the one to do this movie. But thank God they traded, because uh, obviously, Spielberg, you know, Schindler's List is is probably his ultimate movie. I wonder how that conversation goes. Like, yeah, I was just saying Call that. up your friend yeah. and be like... Like, do you think Spielberg like strong armed him? Like, listen, you little shit. I'm gonna well, get that movie if it's the last thing I fucking do. <laughs> from what I ha- from what I gathered too, um, if you go back to 1988, um, Scorsese made uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, and that was a total passion project of his that he had been trying to make for years. And right before Passion of the Christ, Scorsese had had like a number of like not well received movies. And he only by the skin of his teeth was able to make The Last Temptation of Christ by agreeing to Universal that Universal was like, we will give you the money to make your little passion project about Christ. But in return, you have to make two movies for us and they have to be box office successes. Like they have to try. And so he had made uh, The Last Temptation of Christ in 1988. And then in 1990, he made Goodfellas, but he made that with Warner Brothers. So that wasn't part of his universal deal. And Goodfellas, completely, you know, like a phoenix from the ashes, everybody was like, he's the greatest filmmaker that there ever was. Why did we ever doubt him? This is incredible. And so he was at top of his game, but he still owed Universal those two movies, and he owed it to them to give them something that would make money. Which is really interesting to me because didn't the original Cape Fear bankrupt Gregory Peck's production Oh, company? interesting. Mm. I never heard like, that. It didn't do well until much later, obviously. Well, this but. also too, you have to, this movie is technically a yuppie in peril movie. And in the early 90s, Fatal Attraction had come out, and we were about to get Single White Female. And, it's my uh, favorite type of thriller. Hand That Rocks a Cradle. So I think the writing was on the wall- mm-hmm. At, the, at this time that like these movies were bringing in box office. I think that's probably what attracted Spielberg to it. And I think that's what, I'm sure the conversation between Scorsese and Spielberg was like, hey, look, we all know you got this deal with Universal and you need to, you need a hit. Why don't you do this? Because this has a chance of actually being a hit, which it was. This was at the time that uh, Scorsese made this movie when it came out. It did great and uh, was his biggest hit ever at the time. So he completely fulfilled his obligation to deliver a hit for Universal. Wesley Strick, the the screenwriter, was brought on by Spielberg. And Spielberg had him have a lot of action sequences in that initial draft of the script. And apparently when Scorsese took on the project, the first thing he did was go through the script and just take out all of the Spielberg flair. Because he was like, Spielberg is a master at that stuff. 
I've never done it. I don't think I'm good at it. So he basically nixed all of the big action sequences except for the boat sequence because that was sort of like a requirement. Um, and then his next note was like, we have to make this a character study with everybody, particularly the family, which I think in the original script was pretty much just like the way it is in the original movie, like perfect little family. Uh, the reviews were iffy, but like made tons of money. A lot of people will point to Cape Fear as Scorsese's worst movie. And I think they're all fucking boneheads. And even at the time, people were weird about it. If you go back and read the reviews, everybody is like, this movie's good, but why is Scorsese making it? He has stooped himself to making this kind of a movie, even though he did an excellent version of it. And it's like, let you this know, man do that, what he wants to do. You brought up elevated horror. And I think a bit like a big component of a lot of those movies, you know, having a a message that's really important to the filmmakers that they want to make sure comes through in the f- finished product. And sometimes how do you... How do you balance that? How do you balance the entertainment and the horror with something meaningful or, uh, you know, important to the filmmaker that that you want to address? I think Mm -hmm. this movie is a perfect example of that, because unlike the book, uh, Sam Bowden was not Max Cady's lawyer. He was... Uh, a, witness. a witness. He just mm-hmm. saw, he was in the Navy in Australia and saw uh, Max Cady uh, do something horrible to a woman in an alley. And he had to testify. And so I think that's a weak plot line. I yeah. think that's a weak mm-hmm. element of the book. Um, just getting revenge against the person who testifies to you. And the brilliance of Scorsese changing it to be that Sam Bowden represented him mm-hmm. and was so... Appalled you were by, my lawyer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like the, a lawyer is not supposed to do that. So it creates this. Well, it makes it such more of a crisis for the audience yeah. too, because it's like you what are you on his in that exactly. situation. That's exactly. What it, it makes you yeah. keep thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed the book. I think it's really well written. I really liked his dialogue. But at first, I was really not into the character of Sam Bowden in the book because, like you said, the way he gets himself into the situation is kind of underwhelming. But as a character, too, he is very much portrayed as like a pretty solid, if not perfect, guy. He has a perfect family and a perfect life. And he his whole thing in the book is that he is all about the justice system. He's like a true believer. He like has based his entire life on believing that the justice system works. And ultimately, when the book started to become interesting to me is when the cracks in that start to happen. And he's the, the big change in him is that he realizes through the situation that the justice system can't help him and that he is forced to go, like, go against his ethics and everything he sort of stands for in order to protect his family because the police can't protect him. I thought that was pretty interesting. It's not as interesting to me as what Scorsese does with the character. I agree. I do think it was a strong point in the book for me. Like I I didn't view that. I did not have the Gregory Peck Cape Fear in my head when I watched this, which felt like a very code movie or like censored movie, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. one of those movies where you have to depict a perfect family and you, you know, there's all these studio rules that, that whitewash everything and, right. and make it so vanilla. And I didn't feel that in the book, even though it, it was an older book and yeah. old timey. And, you know, Kearsack was, was an African-American character in the book and they made him mm-hmm. white in both movies. Yeah. Um, and then I did think that his, um, she has a different name in the book, but Nancy, uh, Nancy, no, 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 the the mom. 
Oh, yeah. Lee in the movie and the mom's name was like Peggy. Peggy, mm-hmm. I think. Peggy in the book, I thought, was well-written. And I liked Me her too. dialogue and I felt like she was strong and independent and she felt like an equal player in the conversations. She makes it clear very early on that she wants to know what's going on. Don't you dare leave me out yeah. of the decision-making. Mm-hmm. And she wants to see him dead just as, ba- as bad as yeah. Sam. And I, I remember reading that Jessica Lange uh, was really frustrated with her character when she got the script that she was like this character is nothing you do not know how to write a female character and so she took it upon herself to add as much which is why a lot of that improv was born between Mm -hmm. the two of them and i so i think what you end up seeing in the film is a lot more interesting than i'm guessing what was originally there but kudos to the book for sort of for the writer McDonald to have that in there in the beginning. And so, yeah, for me, the most interesting aspect of that is what happens when the justice or legal system that you believe in starts to fail you. And then do you have it in yourself to kill someone if defending your family depends on that? Mm -hmm. And I think the book did a really good job of addressing that and again Scorsese does something more interesting however like they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too meaning Nick Nolte has already abandoned the law when he decided to bury something yeah. and mm-hmm. not do his job mm-hmm. and yet for the rest of the movie he's like oh, I can't do that that's against the law that we yeah. have laws yeah. he's trying reason, to be so. that character but he's already like yeah. lost he clearly doesn't have faith in the system which to me makes it really interesting because um I sort of read the 91 Cape Fear as a morality tale but more in the direction of the infidelity and what Sam the way he treats his family, less so the way he treats the law and and as a lawyer, even though a lot of people point to the fact that like, you know, his first moral breach was not representing his client. Even though it feels like he to me, I mean, I guess that is a moral breach, but it's like he's doing what he thinks is right. So therefore you're still on his side. And I come honestly, I completely agree with him because what's brilliant about this movie is that Unlike the book, we're starting in a world where everybody knows the justice system is broken. Mm -hmm. The whole reason why he buried the evidence on Katie is because he knows that the system is so broken that they would use that evidence to put the victim on trial. And And then you see that happen again with the woman who gets attacked. Yeah, Ileana Douglas's character specifically will not testify because she knows they will turn it back on her because that's how broken the system is. Mm -hmm. So in my mind... Him burying the evidence is the moral high ground because he's well aware of what the system will do. And he's actually being a human over a lawyer in that situation. And so for me, I don't think that's something to be punished for. I think that's him being a good person, to be honest. But he's now he's put in a situation where this sort of false mask that he's wearing of a lawyer who believes in the justice system is now truly put to the test when it's failing him on every other regard. And I do think for people who are because it, it is hard to listen to 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 us say like oh he did the right thing it's like his but no his yeah job, no it's the wrong he's thing not supposed sure. to do that yeah, it's yeah, illegal yeah. and like imagine being 
uh, not guilty of something mm-hmm. and you're the lawyer who is representing you does something that gets you yeah it can't thrown happen. in jail yeah yeah can't happen but the movie does make it clear yeah that that max katie was bragging to yeah that he did do oh my this. god yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that's what's that's know. what makes it so interesting and complicated yeah and again just a brilliant choice for the 91 cape fear that it's not just uh a victim who is afraid to testify because they're so afraid of Max Katie, but they're right. afraid and they're afraid of the system. Of the system, you know? yeah. That is the brilliant, perfect way that she's you not even, even afraid of Max Katie. She is truly afraid of the system, yeah. and she's afraid of. She's like, these are the people I work with. You know what they're gonna say, and like, it's really damning. Ugh. This is the perfect way to say something in a movie and not lose your audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to talk more about Cape Fear. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome back to Cinema Possess, and we are talking 1991's Cape Fear. Uh, this movie opens great. The Universal logo turns into water. Hits you right away with an amazing Bernard Herrmann sting. The score is so good. It's the original score from the original 1962 oh. film. But it's been reconducted by Elmer Bernstein. Because at this point, Bernard Herrmann was dead. Same Bernard Herman who told William Friedkin yes. <laughs> that I can mail him a score and yeah, fix his I can fucking fix this awful piece of shit. Movie. <laughs> yeah, Bernard Herman did. Uh, he was he was Hitchcock's guy. He did Psycho. He did North by Northwest. He had worked with Scorsese on Taxi Driver. In fact, that was his last score. He died before Taxi Driver even came out. And it sounds like the score was a huge reason why Scorsese even liked the original movie to begin with. And it's iconic. One of the most incredible scores he ever did. Elmer Bernstein thinks that Bernard Herrmann would be rolling in his grave. Yeah, if he, he was a curmudgeon. He would have hated yeah. it. And yeah. he also, because they they only had so much of the score, it's a much longer movie and they had more sequences to do, that he ended up having to pull some score, some unused Bernard Herrmann stuff from a, another Hitchcock movie called Torn Curtain. What do you call Martin's music in his movies? Um, A score... Sacy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we immediately get hit with a great title sequence by um, the master Saul Bass and his wife Elaine. Uh, Saul Bass did the the title sequences also for Psycho and North by Northwest. It's just great to get a true blue title sequence right off the bat and a great one at that. And what a dream to be a filmmaker, to go out and spend, I don't know how many months making your movie, shooting all the stuff, and then being like, you know what? I'm going to go ask another great filmmaker to just give me a little short film that I'm going to put at the beginning of my movie to make it awesome. That's essentially what he did. It's like, can you just go shoot me something? And a few weeks later, Saul Bass gives him this, and it's like, this is amazing. I would love that. I'll happily put this at the beginning of my movie. Julianne Lewis, I guess, is like writing a little paper for her, like, English, English class. class. Yeah. My reminiscence. I always thought that for such a lovely river, the name was mystifying Cape Fear. When the only thing to fear on those enchanted summer nights was that the magic would end and real life would come crashing in. It <laughs> <laughs> goes right into a fucking prison cell, oh, baby. Yeah. Those horn blasts bring us there. It's all in one shot. It's totally zoomed in on his wall. And as it pulls out, he lifts himself up. He's doing fucking um, dips. Yeah, dips. dips. He's doing yeah. dips. His back is to camera. He's fucking shredded. shredded. He's got this huge crucifix on his back with two scales Tons on it. Tons of that tattoos. Say justice and truth. This is something fucked up in my brain that I'm like watching this movie and I'm like, this is like the type of guy I'm attracted to. Is <laughs> <Yeah>. this like... <laughs> Well, like Jack's always like making fun of me that like I, if there's a guy in a movie who has like sunken eyes, you're like, yeah, you you're in love with him. But yeah, this like tatted up. Yeah, I don't He's know. Hot. I know. He's attractive. It works. Uh, De Niro began training six months before shooting began. He worked out six days a week for two to three hours a day. Damn. Once filming started, he worked out for five hours. And I think I'm going to start working out to this <laughs> Bernard Herrmann score. I'm going to run to Tubular Bells and I'm going to lift <laughs> weights to Cape Fear by Bernard Herrmann. By the time you come back to LA, Justin Jack's just going to be... <laughs> a true psychopath psychotic yeah, yeah. <laughs> he also reportedly uh paid a dentist five thousand dollars to grind his teeth down. oh god this is the weird method acting shit that i'm like come on now and then paid another twenty thousand dollars after rap to fix them and yeah he went to not only did he go to like bars and diners and interview just like southern folk but he went to prisons and interviewed rapists and murderers Ugh. in a cell we get pictures of nietzsche Saint Sebastian, Saint of Martyrdom, I believe, mm -hmm. Joseph Stalin, Robert E. Lee, and did you notice Captain Marvel is in there too? He's got a little Marvel comic book in there. Mm. Tracks. Yeah, fucking psychopaths. <laughs> For a character who is like building himself into what he believes is like a superhero, it makes sense that he's reading some comic books in there along with all his other law books and the power of will and stuff like that we should say it now because it, it works as a later reveal in the movie but i think for the podcast we should say that max katie is illiterate he can't yes. read yeah. in the beginning and so we it kind of gets revealed and it's an important plot point that he taught himself how to read uh -huh. 15 years counselor it reminds me, there's something about like seeing him have truth and justice on his back and sort of what his overall vendetta is reminds me of the free speech bros who are like like Elon Musk, you know, who yeah. are like all about free speech. But there's something 
something sinister behind their use of free speech. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously, we all know free speech is a great <laughs> thing worth fighting for, but the way a certain group weaponize leverage, yes, weaponize exactly. and leverages that for their agenda is like kind of Max Katie to me. Yeah. We should just call them all Katie bros. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's, honestly, that's, that's like giving them too much credit to me. He's too cool. <laughs> He leaves prison. Hey, Max, don't you want your books? Already read them. Walks right into camera. Literally, his chin touches the lens. I fucking love it. Love those little flares. Such a good shot. And, you know, only Scorsese is, like, ballsy enough to do that kind of shit. He's, like, not afraid to expose the filmmaking. He's never afraid to expose the filmmaking because he's so confident in his style that he's like, yeah, call me on it. I don't care. Like oftentimes you'll see things in his movies that in any other movie you might deem a mistake. You know, he'll have weird jump cuts or it happens a number of times in this movie where somebody, their mouth isn't moving, but a line is dubbed over their mouth. And honestly, it works just fine to me. Like the style and tone of the movie does not throw me that like, his mouth isn't moving the right way when he says, you're going to learn about loss. Because it just sounds awesome. Yeah. And he wanted Robert De Niro to walk right into the lens on that shot. And he does. Yeah. Sometimes art is messy and that's okay. And it should be. I don't know be. why we expect movies to be perfect. It's why sometimes a David Fincher movie is kind of boring because it's too perfect. Particularly his modern, his most recent stuff where he's mm -hmm. like really getting in there and stabilizing everything and like taking heads from one shot to make the perfect take on another. There's merit in that. And sometimes it's great, but sometimes it yeah. makes it a little stale. Like you would never call a Scorsese movie stale because he leaves in those little flourishes. Those grace notes as freaking mm -hmm. might say even now he does oh yeah even now irishman's filled with them i can't wait to see what kind of weird shit he does in killers of the flower moon oh and on the note of cinematography i'll just say that i watched this on a nice blu-ray i have had this on every format uh this is martin scorsese's first anamorphic widescreen movie and um he claims that the only reason why he hadn't been shooting in anamorphic before this was because the um, pan and scan was so bad for anamorphic movies that he always shot in the more traditional 60 by 9 so that the pan and scan on VHS and on television wouldn't be so bad. However, I first saw this on television, and then once I got into Scorsese and started like collecting his stuff, I was like, ooh, I got to get Cape Fear. I always like that movie. Had it on VHS. That's where I truly fell in love with it. My VHS was pan and scan as well as every time I ever saw it on TV was pan and scan. Uh, and I remember getting the DVD and seeing it for the first time in its full widescreen glory and being like, damn. Yeah. And I think you already said what pan and scan is, but there is a, on YouTube, there was like a promo video Scorsese made. That's fun to look up if you want. It's like three minutes and he explains why he shot anamorphic mm -hmm. and why pan and scan is a problem. And he shows examples of a pan and scanned copy of Cape Fear. And you see side-by-side -side comparisons where basically pan and scan is somebody just without any creative intention whatsoever yep. punching in. And so they're not, if there's something in the frame that you're missing, because we're zooming in in order mm -hmm. to fill that four by three on a, on a normal television set, you totally miss the joke. And so there, there's like that moment where Max Cady is being released from prison yeah. and he's walking towards camera and there's a guard in the back 
holding all of Max Cady's books yep. saying, what about your books? Already read them. And so in the pan and scan version, you just hear him say that you don't see the yeah. guard. Uh, and in the widescreen version, because the guard is, you know, yeah. off to the side. Yeah. So I thought that was like a helpful way for people to understand the importance of like what you miss when, yeah. when you're watching a pan and scan version. Everything is really set up well in this house, in this opening. You get a shot of the housekeeper right away. It's a fun shot where like you see her feet and then it pans up to her, and then she walks, and you meet Danny, played by Juliet Lewis, and then she goes inside, and you get to meet Leap, Jessica Lang. You get to meet the dog, Benjamin. In the book, the dog is a girl named Marilyn. Problematic. <laughs> they replaced a female role with a male. Seems Keep it moving. Kinda, <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> we see Sam is in an inappropriate fling with a co-worker named Lori, who's played by Ileana Douglas. Great racquetball scene. Have you ever played racquetball before? Not like that. Oh my gosh, racquetball used to be really hardcore when I was growing up because it was at the YMCA. Mm -hmm. So like my mom and my brother and I would like go a bunch. And did you, this movie makes it look crazy. No, it's scary. (laughs) It's honestly really scary because I mean the ball can bounce off of literally anything and it's going so fast Mm -hmm. it's 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 it's, it's a hardcore game yeah this movie is like moving it's editing through these sequences so fast pickleball you you get to this racquetball thing and it's literally like we're in saving private ride yeah it's like (laughs) cameras flying around i used to always get afraid i'd get locked in the in the racquetball court court? because for some reason racquetball courts don't have well it's probably because of the ball they don't have um doors handles Mm. like uh normal handles they're like flat and so as a kid, you would really get freaked out. They'd get locked in Did you have to wear there. the goggles? Yeah. Wow. Well, you were always wearing goggles, right? <laughs> wow. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> they were called bifocals, Justin. They were called uh, yeah. bifocals. <laughs> um, Ileana Douglas was dating Martin Scorsese at the time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. They got together after while he was in post on uh, Last Temptation. He brought her in to do some voiceover work and they kind of hit it oh, off she's there. So she's so charming. She's so fucking good. She's a great interview, too. She gives a lot of good interviews about her whole career, but all the stuff about Cape Fear is all fun. And, you know, Scorsese is going to have the first meeting between Max and Sam at the cinema. I just love this, that we start on a screen. It's a little disorienting because you don't really know what you're seeing. And then suddenly Max Cady's silhouette just walks in like mystery science theater style. And now you know you're like in a movie theater. And what better movie to see than Problem Child? It's so (laughs) random. It feels so random. I love it. According to Ileana Douglas, Scorsese loves Problem Child. And because Problem Child is a universal movie, he had access to any movie in their library. And he was like, I want that one wow. yeah it's brilliant brilliant marketing for them and mm-hmm. it, it makes katie look like a true psychopath yeah and i think it actually has a um potentially triple meaning to it too one max katie is very much like a problem child so there you go that's mm-hmm. the most obvious one two mm-hmm. in the sequence that they show of problem child it's doing a shining reference mm-hmm. john ritter is looking through a, a bursted hole in a door and he says here's daddy <laughs> I noticed a handful of what I felt like were re- Scorsese tipping his hat to other filmmakers. Obviously, there's a million Hitchcock references in the movie. That's one of the nods to the other filmmakers. It's a little Kubrick nod, I think. But the th- mm-hmm. the the other thing is, is that in this movie, very much like in The Shining, a father becomes so possessed by what's happening to him that he turns on his family. 
So it's yeah. a little bit foreshadowing. It's a little bit foreshadowing what's going to happen with Sam and Danny. Yeah. Because by the end of this movie, Danny's literally pushing Sam away, saying, get away from me. Don't touch me. Very much like Danny. Danny, Danny in The Shining, Shining is running yeah, from his yeah, father. Yeah. I think that, that's, I think that's, that's a like film a, that a deep, uh, <laughs> deep dive type situation. But yeah, you yeah. can follow yeah, it. That's what he, he is. I think he's... I think he's more concerned with protecting his daughter who is doing something really dangerous yeah, without for sure. realizing it. For yeah. sure. But he's also, you know, he's getting he's getting a little possessed by it. He's getting a little haunted by it uh, in, in that moment. We'll talk about it when we get to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure you'll I love have this. some hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> How would you have felt if Katie literally at the end takes an axe and cuts a hole through the door and sticks his head through and says, here's Katie. <laughs> would I you think it was a good choice? It. Yeah, no, I would think it was a bad choice. <laughs> the camp went a little too hard. It's the perfect choice to have John Ritter in Problem Child say that mm-hmm. line. What's the Katie. difference? What's the difference? <laughs> yeah, he lights up a cigar. He's got one of those fun little uh, booby light up lighters uh, that I always wanted as a kid because I just thought they were funny. I thought you had one. I had one Didn't that was. Didn't I get you one? Like, yeah. at, like I went to Gulf Shores or something, and I think I got you one. Yeah, later on in life, I did have one. Man, I wish I still had it. Yeah. Especially if it like you're welcome. Like this Once one. again, a great gift I got for you. And this is just a like iconic moment where he just is laughing hysterically at Problem Child. I love that you can see his smoke from his cigars filling the theater, but you can also see that they got smoke machines behind his seats because mm-hmm. there's like puffs of smoke coming from behind. Again. Scorsese is like, I don't give a fuck. That's something that we would maybe look at and be like, oh, we can't use this shot. You can see the smoke machine puffs. Nah. He and Thelma were like, use that shot. I also love how in this scene, it sets up that Nick Nolte, like, wants to defend his family sort of but can't or is just like Ugh, i'm not going to right well yeah he's there's there's a emasculation themes all through this yeah. movie where he's not wanting to confront him literally he's trying every means to have other people confront him and he just keeps blowing down all those walls until he eventually has to actually confront him by the end of the movie yeah who wants to confront that guy head to head <laughs> not me dude we get our first confrontation between them the next day. Uh, Sam is about to leave work. He gets in his car, and then all of a sudden, an arm just comes swinging through and pulls his keys out of his ignition. You don't remember me, do you, Counselor? Oh, yeah, sure. I remember you. You were at the movie house the oh, other night. Oh, I'm disappointed. I'm hurt. I would like the keys. Max Katie. You look the same. Maybe 15 pounds heavier. But they say the average man gains a pound a year until he's out. <laughs> Gains a pound a year till he's about 60. Me, I dropped a pound every year in my sentence. Leonard, 77. You got it, July. 14 years since I held a set of keys. Well, you look good, healthy. Thank you, because it's a struggle to stay healthy in the junk. Well, you wouldn't know about that, would you? You and me, they stick you with the white trash, and they don't strike a lick of work all day. Back. This little old cigar is my own advice. Because I need advice in the joint to remind me I was human. So what brings you to New Essex? Oh, the climate. Boy, the south. I'm thinking of settling right down here in New Essex, counselor. Have you been following me? Well, it's a small town every way you turn. I guess we're going to run into each other. Well, take care, Mr. Katie. You too. What? 
You're going to learn about loss. Which is like, it's perfect to leave, the volume is perfect on it because when you can hear him, but just barely. I mean, even Corey turned and Mm -hmm. was like, what did he say? And I'm sure there's a million people in the theaters, you know, when this came out, also feeling like that too. Great, great fireworks scene. Sam and Lee decide to have sex. I do that again. Lee, do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nice little... uh, expressionistic sex scene with all these colors and stuff but then lee is unsatisfied she's still horny she decides to go put on some makeup look at herself in the mirror so beautiful jessica she really is yeah i love her little pixie cut too she's rocking it it feels very of the time well and it feels mom yeah but like sexy sexy mom mom. who needs a little more adventure Uh, but incredible shot she looks out the window and she sees max kitty sitting on like their exterior property wall Mm -hmm. and just like an unrealistic amount of fireworks are going off all around him of all colors. It very much reminds me of the shot in Blowout mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. Travolta is holding Nancy Allen at the end. And I bet you it's a little nod to his old buddy De Palma. This movie was shot by Freddie Francis. Freddie Francis was a director initially of horror films. He did the the movie Tales from the Crypt, the movie. Uh, he also did the movie Dark Tower. But then he became a cinematographer and he was Lynch's cinematographer for a little bit. He he did Lynch's Dune. He also did The Elephant Man. Perfect pairing, I think, because I think he was like really in tune with the genre elements that Scorsese was wanting to pay homage to in this. Uh, he eventually has to tell Lee what's going on. He tells him, he's from the hill, some Pentecostal crackers or something. She says, well, what did he do? And he's like, oh, battery or something <laughs> i don't really remember look he's not gonna do anything he just got out of prison he doesn't want to go right back which honestly is the way i used to think about things that like people were afraid of the law mm-hmm. i feel like people are not afraid of well for sure not really anymore the law anymore i just feel like if you've been to jail how do you not want to do anything in your power to not go back Revenge, revenge is yeah. strong. When you've been steaming on it for fifteen years, that also makes me. It's like he's been he's been planning this for fifteen mm-hmm. years. It's he all he's thinking to read. about. Yeah, he's devoted his entire life. Yeah, to this, he must be really excited. You know, he must be waking up every day, being like, "I'm finally going to do the thing that I've been dreaming of." Yeah, you see it. In My him. big plan. That um. Also, just thinking about Jessica Lang. Side note story. I just had a memory right now of with Justin when we first we had been living in L.A. for like two, maybe a year or two. And the first like really big thing I ever got like put on hold for, like I came really close to playing a young Jessica Lang. You were not home and Justin was home asleep and I ran into his bed and I jumped onto his bed. Justin's like shirtless for sure maybe even naked i don't know and i was just jumping on justin's bed being like i got a callback i got a callback for to play jessica lang and we like screamed in the bedroom i think i remember that yeah and then jessica lang decided to play herself herself so then i didn't have it but that's neither here nor there well, she's fucking good in this movie by the way she's well, I don't incredible think we, we i feel like we haven't we didn't talk about enough. that she's so you feel the like franticness in her from the moment that you meet her Mm -hmm. like that this is like a woman on the brink of having like an explosion she gets critiqued too for this movie in a very similar way to to de niro where people people judge her performance a little bit as being over the top i think she's pitch fucking perfect sam ends up revealing to his co-worker fred thompson uh that katie was a rape and battery case and that he's mad at him because he reported the victim came back that she was promiscuous and uh i buried it Buried the report. 
This podcast episode is going to be eight hours long if Jack does every impression. Of and this is where he thing. says, like, but he wouldn't have known that he was illiterate. I had to read everything to yeah. him. Yeah. Such a fucking scary idea that, like, a person in your past who you think is the biggest dumb idiot in the world suddenly, 15 years later, comes back Haunting. in your life and they are, like, a tactful, intelligent, Brilliant mastermind of like making your life a fucking living hell. <laughs> it's like I don't want an enemy. I I don't even like when someone is like mad at me for. I know day. it's haunting. I don't yeah. want, like the the concept of a grudge is truly terrifying. Scary. Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. my trauma is like disappointing somebody. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Let alone that person you disappoint wants to kill you. Yeah. And, but but only after making your entire family and everyone you love yeah. suffer who had nothing to do with nothing it. Nothing to do with it. Yeah. It's the book of Job. He tells him later on in the movie, read the book between Esther and Psalms, book of Job, God uh Kills Job's entire fucking family. I mean, I feel like there's undoubtedly religious allegory going on all through this movie. Like, I think you can read this movie similarly to The Exorcist in that the Exorcist, my reading of The Exorcist being like it's a testing of faith kind of a deal. The devil might be sent by God to test your faith in it. I can kind of see that happening here as well with Max Cady being this sort of like angel of vengeance that is that is there to sort of teach Sam Bowden a lesson in appreciating what he has. Maybe not necessarily like finding faith in God, although I bet you could read it if you wanted to. But for me, it's like, he even says at one point in the movie, like, Maybe I'm here to teach you about the meaning of commitment. He's not committed to his family, mm-hmm. to his to his job as a lawyer, because he clearly is willing to break the code. Uh, and Max Cady is sort of the symbol of um, forcing you to commit; otherwise, you will you will lose it all. Yeah, it 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 was obvious to me that there was something going on in a spiritual or religious sense and everything was biblical in nature, mm-hmm. but I didn't really feel like the filmmakers were trying to make a statement about um, religion or faith in that sense. I viewed it as one man's quest for balance and equilibrium and justice, specifically, you know, vengeance in order to deliver justice for the wrongs that were done against him. But the religious component of it felt more like motif to me. It's a visual theme that reinforces the concept of justice in an archetypical way, not necessarily a a literal religious way. So I I thought it makes sense for Max Cady. I kind of don't really know how much I love that as a motivation for a villain. I don't think it's like that scary to have a character who's like driven by this like radical concept of of spiritual justice um, in the same way that Mitchum's Katie was because Katie Mitchum's Katie was also menacing, but there wasn't really a religious component to it. Right. Christ- yeah, he doesn't Christian really component. Do mm-hmm. Another great scene where they see each other out on the street and he tells him he learns to read in the joint. First, it was Spot goes to the farm, <laughs> then Runaway Bunny, then Law Books, mostly. How much, Katie? How much you want? <laughs> yeah. I fucking love that. He's like, what about $10,000? And he says, what? Let's just break that down. Oh, well, you know, I just threw out anything. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Yeah. Let, 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 let's say, let's say hypothetically, let's say fifty thousand yeah. dollars. Fifty thousand divided by fifteen years—that's three hundred sixty-five days a year. That comes out to about 
Well, that's about $10 a day, counselor. That's not even minimum wage. Uh, he also reveals that he was raped in prison multiple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we get the dog scene. It's kind of horrible, high-pitched howls. They sounded like he was screaming. And then Danny came running in, and I, um, I called the vet. And then it was so weird because it was like he was winding down, just winding down like an old clock. And then all of a sudden he just stopped. Dog scene is Uh, rough in the movie, but the dog scene was rougher in the book for me because the book really describes what the dog is feeling. It's pretty... Intense, but the way Jessica Lang, the way Jessica sells Lang, it, oh god, when she says he just starts winding wind, down, winding uh, down like an old clock. winding down, really uh. sad. But the book is fucking sadder when Marilyn gets it, <laughs> and the book has a really chilling line where it's basically like, had Marilyn been a like a scarier dog oh. that was like capable of doing anything to anybody. It would be like less sad, but they were like Marilyn was afraid of her own fucking shadow. So yeah. it's like this torturous thing. And all the family sees it in the book. Like all the kids are surrounding the dog, being like, What's going on, mommy? Uh, it's tough. Wait, what were you when you were referring earlier to the the improv with Jessica Lang? Whoa. Her and uh, Nick Nolte improvised a lot of their like dialogue together. Like and- their fight and stuff. Mm-hmm. Wow. To expand on their relationship past and things like that. Uh, they pick up Katie. They do a fun strip search of him. Robert Mitchum has his little cameos. I don't know whether to look at him or read him. Great pair of red cheetah panties on that guy. <laughs> I like those little, like the the red panties and the uh, the lighter are like little references to his like promiscuity. Promiscuity, yeah. you know, it's unsettling, and also too, he's just—it's like he's looking through the one-way mirror, but yeah. he can see Sam Bowden. It's like he's looking right at, which is kind of a callback a little bit to Seven because uh, John Doe does that to Brad Pitt's character. It looks right at him through the one-way mirror. The movie tries to find any excuse it can to make Max Katie feel like it's like larger than life or supernatural mm-hmm. or yeah, he's a real supervillain. Yeah, scary. But they can't hold him. They also find out, too, that he has a bunch of inheritance money from, like, a dead relative. Mm-hmm. So he's got plenty of money. Do I look destitute to you, Kathleen? Well, in the uh, in the 60s Cape Fear, at that time, there was a, a law called, like, vagrancy, where you could literally arrest someone for being poor. What? And so they, they, like, pull him off the street to try to see how much money Thinking he has. Thinking he is, him. yeah. Yeah. And, Good God. Yeah. So then we get our Ileana Douglas sequence, which starts with a great scene with them at the bar. Mm-hmm. This is also an improvised scene. God. This was? You mm-hmm. think that I slept with this particular hey, married guy. Uh-uh. No, I, I don't want to make it sound like I've been through a busload of them. <laughs> That's the way it sounds to me. <laughs> he was the first. Oh, yeah. I, he sure. was, I swear. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Tell it to the judge. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the rat stood me up today. Did he? Yes. What a shame. I know. <laughs> so, now it's my turn. Where are you from? Where am I from? Yes. You're going to love this. Yes. I'm from uh, Georgia State Correctional Facility, Miami. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I don't think I'm joking. That's the truth. I just got released from prison. Oh, my God. This is the way my day's been turning out. Oh. Oh, actually, it, uh, it reminds me of a joke. Do you want to hear it? Tell me. I'm up the night. All right. An unmarried woman. Uh, she... Wait a minute. That's not it. An unmarried woman. Come on, get the joke she straight, darling. Shut up, shut up. Let me do it. Uh, an unmarried woman. She meets a guy, and he tells her he just got out of prison. Uh, what'd you do, she asks. I hacked my wife into 52 pieces with a <laughs> she, she says, so you're single? Oh, that's even funnier. Thank you. Uh, can I ask you something? What? What did you do? I knew you were going to ask that. Uh, I hacked my wife into 52 pieces. <laughs> I was afraid you were going to say that. Well, I'm a very small person, so you know me. Well, maybe I can hack you into yeah, 40 pieces. <laughs> <laughs> like the joke she tells and everything? Yeah, I mean, now, when we say improvised, yeah, didn't do, do it all, like, completely, completely on camera, but mm-hmm. they would, like, r- improvise in rehearsals, and then they would mm-hmm. be like, that's what we're going to do for the scene, rather than wow, what was originally so scripted. Cool. But she's so fucking good in the scene. The way she laughs is so natural. Ugh. She really feels like a girl who's had a couple drinks in her and is, like, really crushing on a guy. Yeah. She's selling it good. And then we get a really, really intense... Assault Whew. sequence, which again she's amazing in because she makes this really interesting choice to not play Be scared. scared. Yeah, she's playing, she continuing to laugh. She's taking all of the aggression that he's giving her and taking it as like, ooh, and she's this also is fun. she's hammered. She's yeah, hammered. She's yeah. very drunk. It, I'm saying it's a smart acting decision. Yeah, you know, like you know, a lot of these sequences in movies would have a moment where she's suddenly like, hey. Hey, what's going on? Stop it. And she never does that. He literally it's not until she like gets her arm broken and he bites her cheek off oh, that she actually reacts in horror. And it makes the scene all that more tension filled because she's not thinking anything is weird. She's just probably thinking she's gonna have some rough sex with this guy. Uh it also sounds like Ileana Douglas really made this character her own. Like it was written completely differently in the script. She said that she was really affected by this case called the preppy killer and it was this guy who killed a college student and the trial did turn against her even though she was dead they did like try to prove that she was promiscuous and that she asked for it and that she was the one who was encouraging the rough because he killed her while having sex and um, that's part of the stuff that Ileana Douglas brought to to this whole sequence and character. There is an argument that could be made that maybe in the original Cape Fear, in the in a similar scene where Robert Mitchum is about to do that yeah. to a woman, the camera sort of tracks just closes away the door. and closes yeah. the door, and we don't see what happens, and then we just see the aftermath and. I don't know. I mean, it's like it's hard for me to say that the violence that they show in this scene necessarily makes it better. Sometimes against the idea of what you don't see is a little bit more unsettling and effective than what you do see. Uh, I don't know. Where do you two stand on on that? Seeing that versus not seeing yeah. it implied violence I think it's versus just, shown violence. I think it's just enough because I think it's when you suddenly realize like. That's the moment where there's like no turning back that you're like, okay, he is a psychopath. Like this family is very in danger. I mean, you do see two very gruesome things and break her arm and his bite her cheek off. But the fact that he took two specific moments as opposed to there's been other movies that like I've literally had to like walk out of the room for because I feel like they're just like 
hammering the brutality against a woman in a scene, like really focusing on it. He does it quick enough to where it gets the point across. It's extremely brutal. It's extremely fucked up, but it doesn't feel like it's like gratuitous gratuitous. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It definitely is. It's shocking without feeling like it's reveling in it. Yeah. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to underplay it to the degree where you're still rooting for him, you know? Like, yeah, you know, if you're going to show something horrific, you may as well make it horrific to sell the point of it. Yeah. And the, the scene is not sexy, which is another thing that a, yes. that a, uh, a worser movie would do is where you you get to see Ileana Douglas's boobs and she strips for him and you, you they make it erotic and stuff. They don't do that mm-hmm. here. I, I will say that. it pays off further down the line for me in that because you see him do this to Lori, by the time he's alone in the room with Julia oh, Lewis's God, character, you're so scared for her. you can't not think of this scene. And I can only imagine the first time you watched the movie thinking, holy shit, what's he going to do to Juliet Lewis? Because we've seen what he does to mm-hmm. women. There's a really weird moment, too, where, where Sam gets a phone call about it. And there's almost like a sense of excitement in Sam because he doesn't know it's Lori who's been assaulted. But he thinks that this is going to be what puts Katie back behind bars. He sees like, we got a break. Katie raped another girl. He almost has like a little bit of like a, this is it. This is it. And it's not until he walks into the room and sees that uh, it's Ileana Douglas that he is, this is so his heart sad. drops. Yeah. He's kind of excited because he's like, great, we'll put him back in jail for this shit. This scene is this gut-wrenching too because basically she explains that she's not going to testify because she works in the system, and she sees it every day. She sees how the, the they'll cross-examine the victims and they'll crucify them and then laugh about it later. And she's like, I can't be on the fucking other side of that and, t- and tell people why I was in the bar that night and what I was wearing and how many drinks I had. It's humiliating. The system is fucking broken, man. Sucks. And there's a really sad moment, too, where she's like, you know, you stood me up, and I guess I just wanted to oh, show you. This is the line. I sure showed you. That, that literally brought tear to my eyes when she said that. Because she's just so good at it. Like, she's such a natural. Love the next scene, too, where he's on the phone with her, and then Lee walks in the room Ooh, yeah. and catches, and he, like, gets off the phone real quick, and she's like, who is that? The girl that got beat up? And he's like, yes. And she basically is like, like, you're fucking you her. You were fucking her. Yeah. <laughs> and I believe him that he wasn't fucking her. I believe him too, but he was going but to. But he was for like, sure pushing now. the boundaries. Yeah. And if you've already been fucking busted for fucking people in the you past. You moved your whole family. We find out in the scene. We why did you their bother? Whole family. Believe men. You got to believe yeah, exactly. <laughs> But again, that's, um, that's commitment, you know, and, and she's reinforcing that idea of commitment too when she says, why did you bother going through it all, why just creating the second life, yeah. uprooting us if you're just going to fuck around again? So it's a Scrooge kind of story where, you know, maybe Katie is a, an angel of death sent by God to straighten Sam Bowden's path a little bit, you know? Could be. Could be. So they end up hiring a private detective. Joe Don Baker plays Kersick. Like Justin said, this is a character from the novel. Kersick in the book is a uh, police officer. And sort of like an ex-military guy. Ex-military, yeah. Korea War. I will say when reading the book, I was excited when they were bringing in Kersick. I was so pumped. I was like, what is this Korean War vet going to do? But he doesn't last that long. 
He's really only in like maybe 10 pages of the book. Like this movie, he essentially does nothing. (laughs) (laughs) The funniest thing about Jodon Baker is like he inspires so much confidence in Sam and and he is so confident. He's like a bumbling idiot. He's like, look, the system ain't going to help you, but I'm going to help you. Like I can do this. And he literally drops the ball (laughs) at every fucking turn. It's so funny. He's swigging Pepto-Bismol and whiskey. He's a total like Southern bumpkin. He has this great like little monologue about the South evolved in fear. Fear the Indian, fear the slave, fear the damn union. South is a fine tradition of savoring fear. But Sam is excited about him. He's like, this is the guy. This is a-. And it's so funny that like the first day he's tailing Max Katie, Max Katie catches him, sends him some food at the restaurant. And then when he tries to confront him, I love that scene because he basically just tries to scare him off. He's like, hey, Katie, I want you to get out of town. I'm not talking about the town. I want you out of the whole damn state. Mm. Katie's like, are we friends? Because I like to plan my comings and goings with my friends. And if you ain't my friends and you're trying to plan my comings and goings, I'd say that's downright rude. You white trash piece of shit, get out of here. And he's like, ooh, I'm shaking in my boots. (laughs) (laughs) Are you a cop? I bet you were a cop, but you weren't good enough to be in the police force. And so now you do this thing, which is probably exactly Uh what he is. He recommends that Sam do a hospital job. Couple guys, pipe, bicycle chain. And Sam tries to be the up, you know, the bigger man. He's like, I'm a lawyer. I can't operate outside the law. It's law's my business. Katie starts going after Danielle. Great scene where he calls her on the phone pretending to be his uh, the- her theater teacher. He's hanging upside down doing crunches. <laughs> Scorsese does a fun thing where he spins the camera upside down, which happens a few times in this movie where he literally spins it completely like 180. Mm-hmm. On the boat a couple times. Uh, he He tells her to go to the theater the next day. This scene is probably like the most controversial scene of the film. Big, long sequence where Danny goes and meets him in the theater. There's this great like Hansel and Gretel looking set that is built there that he's on. Very creepy. He gives her some pot. He starts talking to her about sexuality. There's a moment at the end of this where he says, you mind if I put my arm around you? She's like, no. Her little voice, no. And uh, he goes over and like strokes her face and then sticks his thumb. Okay, so I heard that that wasn't supposed to happen and he just did it. Mm. Or is that something that maybe happened in an improv? Yeah, basically they they rehearsed the scene a few days before. Never once did he do the thumb thing. That wasn't. It was scripted that they kiss. So that was always Uh there. But um, on the day of filming, apparently Scorsese or De Niro went up to Scorsese and said, I want to try a thing. And he told Scorsese what he was going to do. But he said, I don't want to tell her. And Scorsese said, yeah, let's see how it goes. And so, Uh, yeah, she was not informed. I don't know about that. It is weird. It's definitely weird. It's not something you want to do. I heard a couple, couple different sources that Scorsese did tell her He's going to do something new. He's going to do something. Okay, yeah. if he, if that is brought up and she is like aware of something like that, then I can be down yeah. for it. So she that is, may, that does change that does change the scenario. The dynamic is still though that you have the most high profile actor of course, in the business yes, yes. and a 18 at least if not 17 when they're shooting this. You know, it's it's iffy. It's iffy. But it's an undeniably powerful Extremely. moment and scene, and she's so fucking good in it. And she's given plenty of interviews up to this day about it, and she seems to have no 
trauma or weird feelings about it, yeah. but not something you want to necessarily do as an actor or as a director. Communication is key. I would wager if they told her that he's going to do that, we would see no difference in the final product whatsoever. I would, I would agree. This idea yeah, it's such an alarm. People, yeah. you know, it's getting like, some sort of surprise natural performance is yeah. everything she's doing is natural and it's premeditated. Mm-hmm. She's that's yeah. what her job is. So why mm-hmm. would a thumb in her mouth be so different that we can't tell yeah. her? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Interesting thing about this scene, though, that I thought he mentions to her, your parents punish you for smoking weed. Which is a conversation that Lee and Sam have way earlier on in the mm-hmm. movie. Later on in the movie, it's revealed that he's been coming into the house before they ever thought. So that's like way, that's like one of the first scenes of between Sam and Lee. It's the night they have sex. Mm-hmm. They're talking about marijuana. What's marijuana? You know, you and I used to smoke that in our days. He was there. He's somewhere lurking around listening to them in that moment. Yeah. If he knows about Danny's pot smoke. And there's like an early scene too where the piano wire is missing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's creepy stuff. Yeah. That's like that's pretty creepy. Hider in the house. He's hiding in the house. So when she looks out and sees him sitting on the wall, he's already been in the fucking house that night. Fucking creepy. Ugh. That's fun. Creepy. That's fun. So this sequence sends Sam over the edge. This kind of follows up with the next scene where he confronts Juliet Lewis about it. A note to fathers out there who are listening: don't grab your daughter by the face with your hands. <laughs> yeah. 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 This scene I think is almost just as uncomfortable because she's yeah. she's in her underwear and he's weird about it. He literally tells her, like, you're not a child anymore. He's not weird about it. He's being appropriate about it. I think that's him saying, like, dress yourself. You're not a little girl anymore. But she's in her own room. But she's in her own room and he's her dad. Like, there's something about him. Like, he's on. I don't know. There's something that feels weird about it. Why, though? He's going to talk to her and she's the one who's like, you know, not like. Because he's sexualizing his daughter. By telling but, her to do that, he's sexualizing But there comes an age where, where they are not aware of how, you know, like the dynamic has changed and it's not a little girl anymore. You can't yeah, sleep in your bed with your mom and your daddy anymore. Like at, at, at Yeah, but 16. she is in, in her room with her door shut with a t-shirt on and her underwear like she's she's not doing anything wrong and him coming in there the way in which he says it to her is making her feel shame it's probably more about the way he says it to her because i do think you're right justin if she was laying in the living room like that maybe different but she's not she's in her room yeah there there's there's a middle ground here i think that is and you wouldn't say that to a teenage boy who just had a shirt off who was in Little underwear. A mom would never say that to a teenage boy. True. And and it just harkens back to the 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 dynamics of sexuality between for sure, men for and sure, women. For sure. But I I think the, the I think this is a brilliant stroke to do oh, this in absolutely. this moment because ultimately what's underlying in this scene is that she has a crush on Katie because she's not aware of who he is. Part of the problem is that they've withheld so much from her that all she knows is that he's been lurking around and that he doesn't like her dad. Mm -hmm. But she didn't really like her dad. And he charmed her, made her feel like an adult, which is the opposite of what they're doing. I think there's intentional um, jealousy on Nick Nolte's part with her her attraction. Especially, too, the way he gets violent with her. Because he says, like, did he touch you? And she like giggles in his face and it like sends him 
overboard. When she screams at him, though, to like, get away from me. She has like, two oh. scream moments in this movie that almost like Are bring haunting. tears to my yeah. eyes when they happen because they feel so authentic. And that's one of them when she pushes yep. Nick Nolte away. Oh, come on, man. You would too. If that was your daughter and you found out. I'm not denying. That I'm, not denying, that sure. I'm not denying that. I'm not denying. You wouldn't be yeah. upset. Like you got to be not realistic. Denied. Absolutely. No, not absolutely. It. I mean, I would hope that as a father, I would not strangle her. Of course. <laughs> well, what they should have done, that what they should have done the whole time was they should have just told her they're trying to treat her too much like a child. And it's like, no, you need to tell her why this man is dangerous. Just as yeah. a, yeah. that for fathers out there, like what we were saying earlier, like keeping a secret, all of that stuff. It's like, no, let me talk to me like a, real person right i feel like that's i mean yeah i feel like if if my dad i trusted my dad so much so if he told me this is a bad person because he would tell me why and then i would know okay great got it that but that all of that I, that's is, why i can't all be of that is him. covered in the book like that that yeah. is so well handled in the book a lot of but really, a completely different character yeah. doing he's not he doesn't have this relationship with his children in the book I understand, but he's still communicating with his wife, communicating with his daughter, communicating. Yes. Everybody's yes. on the same page and everybody knows to look out for this guy. Yeah. So, yes, in this movie, he's a, a different flawed character. But yeah. Corey's, yeah, it's Corey, a flaw Corey's 100% right. The point to more so than put your pants on is like yeah. he needs to do a better job of treat like at 15 she's old enough to to be told the truth and it's yeah. for her own good for her own safety exactly. trust yeah. all of us should learn that kids are more ready than we think at earlier mm -hmm. ages to receive mm -hmm. the truth rather than lying to them to protect them from something arbitrary and that by, we think they and don't by lying know to them yeah. exactly yeah. and as we see in this movie by lying to them it just makes them more intrigued by this spooky yeah person. they right. want what they can't have exactly mm -hmm. but she doesn't know what she's getting herself into she doesn't know exactly. who this guy is she does obviously feel conflicted about it though because at the end of the that scene at the high school the theater she yeah her face changes and i think she gets emotional and she runs away she seems more upset yeah yeah mm -hmm. i thought that was a great choice interesting to compare that sequence to the one that's in the 62 movie which is just a straight up stalker sequence where he's like chasing her around the school mm. and apparently that's the way the scene was originally written but scorsese was like nah hell no and it's such a bolder choice because it's a more emotionally terrifying for sure sequence. yeah at someone's school like your daughter isn't mm -hmm. even safe at school in her drama class not in the drama class but you should be safest of all i know right it's probably where a lot of <laughs> fucked up things happen so this makes sam decide that he does want to do the hospital job on katie and this is a fucking great ass sequence too this is this is like my favorite of the action set pieces in the movie made me think about old boy oh yeah. I, it reminded me yeah. so much of the old boy scene and that's like the scene also where i feel like it's really revealed like oh max katie is gonna like he's unstoppable. I love yeah. that they beat his ass first. Like yes, that it's yeah. not just he he's on it from the beginning, but yeah. they get him down to the ground and they're pummeling him. Mm -hmm. And, and then still... something snaps in him mm -hmm. and yeah. he Counselor, come out, come out wherever you are. How can I learn you? How can I read you? How can I thank you? And I can out-philosophize you. And I'm gonna outlast you. 
You think a couple of whacks to my good old boy Gus gonna get me down? It's gonna take a hell of a lot more than that, counselor, to prove you're better than me. I am like God and God like me. I am as large as God. He is as small as I. He cannot above me nor I beneath him be. Salacious. 17th century. And I love it too, because he's just cowering behind the dumpster, you know, just hiding there. Do you think he actually knows he's there? Yeah. Or do you think he doesn't I think he knows. Know, but is, you think he knows? I look at it I mean, a little. Like he, I think he feels it. I think he can feel that he, he knows that. Do you think he can feel, but like in a super villain sense or in a, in a real sense? In a real sense. I think he knows. I think it's like the John Doe sequence in Seven. His master plan is not to beat up and kill Sam Bowden right here at the dumpster. His master plan is to put him on trial in front of his family and to degrade them all in front of his eyes. And so I think he knows he's there and he's choosing not to go around the dumpster and do anything because he's got bigger plans. Yeah. The only thing, just from, just from a realistic standpoint, mm-hmm. It's really hard to understand why Sam would be there. Like, why? Other than yeah. a movie, it's a movie. Yeah. Why did he show it's up? It's movie there? stuff for sure. He wanted to see with his own eyes. He's got to see. Yeah. How do you time that? How do you choreograph that? All right, guys, are you ready? I'm going to hide behind this dumpster. He's back there smoking a cigarette like a little henchman, you know, like the boss. Mm. I don't think I don't think you would have the guts. You just got to let the Oh, yeah. It does not bother me one bit. I love it. Katie ends up taking Sam to court over it. And this is where we get our Gregory Peck cameo. He plays Katie's Bible-spewing, southern-talking lawyer. Also notable in the sequence, the judge is played by Martin Balsam, who is also in the 1962 Cape Fear. Yeah. So they decide to pull this plan where Sam pretends to go out of state in order to make this family seem vulnerable without him and hope that Max Katie would come in and attack them. Meanwhile, Kersick, Joe Don Baker, will post up at the house and be there to get him when he inevitably comes and breaks in. And we get this great, set up where he ties monofilament on all the doors and windows and then ties it to this teddy bear. He says, if that bear moves a quarter of an inch, I'll know if the Holy Ghost is sneaking in. Pretty tense sequence too, where he's watching the bear. And meanwhile, Sam has like this waking nightmare that Max Katie is standing over his bed, which I think is real. What's your interpretation on that? Good question. I mean, I it happens two times in a row. He like wipes his eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Katie's still there, but then he eventually disappears. Mm-hmm. I just, I trust, I trust that it's not real because how is he going to get into cost in costume in the next shot? So quickly? <laughs> the only, the only reason why I think it's real is because as of this point, Katie's only been wearing like Hawaiian shirts and like these really nice button ups. But in this dream, he's wearing his like camo um, sweater that he was wearing at the end of the movie that he go from this point on, he's wearing that. So the fact that in his dream, he's seeing him wearing the camo shirt tells me that he really did see him maybe even in his sleep, you know, like in, in, in sort of his yeah, waking yeah. dream state, he saw him there, but when he actually woke up, he wasn't there anymore. Yeah. I think, but it, either way he comes out of it being like, I know how Katie, he knows he's been in the got, house. Yeah. I know I how he killed the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this next scene oh boy let's get to this next scene so the the bear starts moving 
Kursik starts crawling around the ground. He makes it to the kitchen and then he, Oops. it's Mariella the maid. Oh, you scared me, Mariella. He sits uh. down at the table. <laughs> and there's even a funny moment where you see Mariella and she goes like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's all she in one shot. Word. She, she says a word. What yeah. she say? It sounds just... It sounds, sounds exactly yeah, like she her. says something like long night or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And you can yeah, like see her and it's clear they do like a Texas switch because it's definitely the yeah. actress standing there at first, but it's all done in one shot yeah. and you're just holding on Joe Don Baker and then Mariella walks up behind him, wraps a piano wire around his neck and then we pan up and it's De Niro, not only so, in her clothes, but in a wig. <laughs> in a wig. De Niro, full, he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of Junior. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he put the shoes on and everything. <laughs> My question, when we when we did Santa Christ and yeah. we had Doug dress up uh-huh. uh, as Santa Claus, as my mom. Yeah. That is what this reminded me of. I don't think we specifically well, spoke about it, but I mean, I feel like the... the uh, the trope of the killer dressing as a woman to trick you goes, you know, at least goes back to Psycho. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a trope within the genre that I feel like is just in the lifeblood of it. So I'm sure this movie is probably the reason why we came up with that idea, but I don't remember us ever specifically saying, <laughs> let's do the Cape Fear thing. I think we probably, one of us said, what if... It looks like it's a yeah. woman, and then we finished each other's sentences saying, and it turns around and it's yeah. Doug. <laughs> <laughs> I I like this, and you like this, but I want to give space to people who don't like this. I think if somebody said, "I think this is this is silly," yeah. or the, or this is the only thing in the movie that. Like it's hard to imagine this ruining the movie yeah. in any way for somebody. But it is they, the campiest thing that happens. In yes, the movie. if they reference this as something that they thought was too much or too goofy, yeah. I don't think I would blame them. Yeah. How about you? Come, just be fair. Be well, fair to the audience. You know, I would say, have you seen Psycho? Have you seen Dress to Kill? You know, Michael Caine does yeah. this in Dress to Kill. If they're unaware of those yeah, things, then I would give it a pass. You know what I mean? If if you're like, it, or if you if you don't like those things already, but I would say if you're given Psycho a pass, and you're given Dress to Kill a pass, and you know this movie is actively trying to be in the lineage of those thrillers, then I would say, what's the problem? I feel like at this point, <laughs> it's earned it because we're so far it's into the movie. It. We're along for the ride at this point. It's like we are getting ramped the fuck up for this insane sequence. I can tell you right now, up. if this movie came out today, we went to the theaters and this moment happened, I would stand in the theater <laughs> and I would cheer. I would stand up and cheer for it. So I would say, thank God somebody's doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I can't. If this movie came out today, I would go. I would probably go see it five times in the theater. Yeah, this would absolutely be a Jack goes to see this five times in the theater movie. Yeah, the, apparently yeah. that moment was uh, Steven Spielberg's idea. Mm. The swap, the made swap. <laughs> just the last thing I'll say on that. Just to be fair, I, I don't necessarily think it it is enough for a movie to just be an homage to other styles and genres. So I think- But we've talked about how it's so much more. Yeah, of course, it's so much more. Therefore, it may not mean that much. If somebody is bumped by something in the movie or thinks it's outdated or silly or over the top, it's not going to mean anything to them that it's been done in Psycho or Dressed to Kill. Yeah, Uh, this movie is parodied 
endlessly and was almost immediately. I'm sure you've heard of the or seen the Simpsons episode, Cape Fear. Mm -hmm, With Sideshow Bob. Mm -hmm, As the Max (laughs) Katie character coming after Bart Simpson, in which they literally are just doing like beat for beat the movie. I went and looked up a bunch of other ones and Living Color did one called Cape Rear, in which um, (laughs) Eddie Murphy is being stalked by Arsenio Hall for not putting him on his comedy show. Um, The Ben Stiller show did one called Cape Munster where Eddie Munster gets released from prison. Um, Ooh, I want to see that one. It's okay. <laughs> the problem with all of them is that this movie is so campy and over the top mm-hmm. that in order to parody it, you're essentially just doing the movie. And so in all of them, I would say even The Simpsons included, they don't really add anything else to it. You know, they're just kind of recreating it with their characters. And it's that's where all the laughs. It was funny from. when uh, the the agents are trying to get Homer to say his new fake name. We have places your family can hide in peace and security. Cape Fear, Terror Lake, New Horror Field, Screamville. Ooh, Ice Creamville. Uh, no, Screamville. Tell you what, sir, from now on you'll be uh, Homer Thompson at Terror Lake. Let's just practice a bit, hmm? When I say, hello, Mr. Thompson, you'll say, hi. Check. Hello, Mr. Thompson. Remember now, your name is Homer Thompson. I got you. Hello, Mr. Thompson. I think he's talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) So then they flee to the houseboat. And we basically get our big final climactic sequence. Not in the book. A version of it is in the 1962, but it's not nowhere near as big. Scary, scary. Great shot where they pull over to get some some, uh, snacks at like a gas station. And as they pull off, the camera tilts down and reveals that Max Katie is hanging on, is hanging on to the bottom of the car. Again, it's another should, thing that people point to as too over the top, but I oh, fucking love it. He should still be dressed as the Yeah. Movie. That would be great. <laughs> Wesley Strick, the screenwriter, said that this was inspired by Alien. That the face hugger, oh, the, yeah. the face hugger had always left an impression on him, like this thing attached to you that like yeah. is stuck on you. And that was what inspired that image of him attaching himself to the bottom of the car. And it, that was another thing that on set there was a lot of debate about. Of like, should we do this? Is this too over the top? And um, Scorsese really liked it. Scorsese was like, I don't want to cut it. De Niro was on the fence about it. But De Niro said, if you can prove to me that it can actually be done, then I'll do it. But if it's an impossible thing that can only happen in a movie, then I'm not going to do it. And so they got like a stuntman to like go and tie himself to the bottom wow. of the car and drive around the block a couple of times holding on to the bottom to prove to De Niro that it could be done. And once he saw it, he was like, all right, cool, let's do it. I agree with that. Yeah. It did feel to me like the car was a little Jacked bit higher up. off they the did. ground. They had to jack the car up a little bit and you can kind of tell, but eh, yeah, that's okay. With all the parodies, there's a version of this shot, the, the hanging on the bottom of the car. Eddie Munster is hanging on the bottom of the car at one point in the Ben Stiller parody. <laughs> Sideshow Bob does it. Great fucking final sequence of this thing. I think this. I think everything from the maid on is kind of where a lot of people maybe turn on this movie a little bit. I think it's spectacular. Over the top for sure, but great. This whole boat sequence was filmed in a 90-foot water tank. Wow. I saw some conflicting things. The documentary that I watched said they took two weeks to shoot the sequence, but on IMDb it said that it took four weeks. 
So either a half of a month or a month to shoot it. Either way, they spent a long time in this tank. They they built it, had no air conditioning, so it was sweltering the whole time they were shooting. They were basically just like on a in a big pool with an actual boat on hydraulics, and they had fire hoses all around it, and they were just fire hosing them the whole way through. This is Martin Scorsese's first action sequence. He was very nervous about it. Miniatures are involved in it as well. They had it storyboarded to a T. I think Spielberg helped out. But I think he kills it. It's great. And and it's I think the setting is it's like one of those settings that feels like it's from a dream. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. It's just an archetypical sort of dreamlike nightmare of being on a boat with water as it's like capsizing Mm -hmm. or going off fucking just the world is going out of control showstopper sequence it's long it's brutal it's scary he ends up getting on the boat max katie he uh handcuffs sam outside and he basically attempts to rape lee as well as danny evening ladies you know my husband has a gun. Not this gun. Is it this gun? Where is he? Resting up. Had a long, difficult day. Danielle, I told you, you can't escape your demons just by leaving home. I didn't. My parents brought me here. Of course. But great speech from Jessica Lange. Oh, I was just going to say she, that. When she's like, just do the, leave her be, like, do this for me. Because you know? I'm like you. Yeah. Like, I'm like you. Yeah. yeah. I know the pain you felt, and we are more alike. I know what it's like to be, yeah. <laughs> to have loss. Yeah. She's like rubbing her chest. Yeah. It's just, oh, it's so good. I, lo- I, I don't know what prison is like, but I lost 14 years. <laughs> and, and it reveals that Sam is just sitting outside the window, listening. like watching yeah. and listening. That's got a fucking hurt but it also yeah. wake up call slap in the face mm-hmm. uh-huh and the way that she more than he ever has been able to is going to protect her daughter she's willing to sacrifice her yeah. fucking self and tell the psychopath anything that he needs to hear so that her daughter can be saved mm-hmm. she is the fucking true hero Danny ends up setting his face on fire, which is a great sequence. He looks like a monster now. Like Chucky in Child's Play 2, mm-hmm. or Child's Play 1. And he, he does what now he's ultimately there to do, which is put Sam on trial. The people call Samuel Bowden. Hold a little mock trial with his family as the jury and God as the witness. And there's these great moments <laughs> where he's literally like turning and looking up at the camera, like the God's oh, eye so view. Good. I love that. Do you swear to tell the truth, nothing about the truth, so help you God? Katie, somebody's got a man in the boat. We're heading into unprotected you water. swear? I'll do it, Dad. Sit down, Dad. Don't you make light of your civic duty, darling. Go to the jury. All right, all right. Okay, okay. I swear to tell the truth. What do you want to know? Was a prior sexual history ever prepared connection with my defense? Uh, Was a prior sexual history ever prepared connection with my defense? It's... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Your Honor. I agree. That was argumentative. An investigator... You were my lawyer! That report would have saved me 14 years! That may not have. (laughs) (laughs) Not necessarily true. And then he starts, like, really, he starts calling himself. He's like, I am Virgil, and I am guiding you through the ninth circle of hell. I find you guilty, counselor. Guilty of betraying your fellow man. Guilty of judging me and selling me out. Now you will learn about loss, loss of freedom, loss of humanity. You and I will truly be the same. And then basically the storm comes and flips the boat. 
and kind of saves the day in this in this moment because he is now at this point telling Lee and and Danny to strip, and he says he's going to turn them into animals. Henry, Henry, stop! Go on, white trash piece of shit. Uh, everything goes insane. The boat bursts into a fucking million pieces. Great miniature shots here. Camera spinning, fucking swinging everywhere. Just awesome. There's even a little callback to Taxi Driver. I noticed where remember that shot in Taxi Driver when Travis Bickle is looking at the guns. And he pulls one of them out of the case and he goes to the window and he starts pointing it at people. And there's almost this like point of view shot. It looks like from a video game or something where you, the, the moving the gun around in like a point of view shot. He does uh-huh. that in this sequence where Max Katie gets the gun and Sam is hiding. And, and yeah. you're seeing it through his point of view as the gun's moving around. And we did reference this shot in Exorcitters with the cross. This moment where Nick Nolte is crawling on the floor. <laughs> And he takes the handcuffs and uh-huh. he grabs it around his ankle and the camera like cuts to him and he looks like a analyst. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Max Katie shoots at him and like misses and Nick Nolte disappears like with supernatural yeah. <laughs> great stuff of them flying where there's like reverse shots flying through the air and stuff. They're swish panning all over the place. Flies away. <laughs> Making these insane noises. He's turned him into an animal. He ends up landing in the mud. Great reveal of Max Katie where like the boat, like a wall from the boat falls down. And then like you see Max Katie go like. And there's like a great like like musical sting on it. And they start whacking each other with like stones. And Nick Nolte basically becomes, this feels like a 2001 reference where like he picks up like the big massive rock and he's gonna bash it over his head and he looks like the monkeys from 2001 and then yeah big tidal wave comes pulls max katie away just in time for him not to smash his head and yeah he goes floating into the water speaking in tongues and his eyes are open the whole time he's going on. That's yeah. what feels like the most like a Jack and Justin. That feels like a Justin character. Once mm-hmm. he gets burned by the hairspray, oh, I'm yes. like, this is a Justin character now. Like the like I just can yeah. see you doing it so clearly. But that to me felt like maybe it was a little nod to Coppola. It has a little bit of an apocalypse now vibe, almost like in reverse. You know, he's going under, mm. but it's like the same shot. So it felt to me like it was Scorsese being like, hey, Coppola. Did you see what I did? Or maybe that was his nod to, hey, Spielberg, I got your little (laughs) shark in the water. Oh, there is is a Spielberg. I forget exactly when it happens, but um, Spielberg, I don't know if he does this anymore, but he did, he used to do this. He would always put a shooting star in his movies. It would be a shot. It's in E.T., it's in Jaws. Um, I believe it's in Close Encounters too. And there is a shot where it's an exterior shot of the Bowden's house somewhere in the third act of the movie that it cuts to it and you see in the, st- in the skies a shooting star. And apparently that was like a little nod to, oh, to Spielberg. And according to Ileana Douglas, Spielberg basically stayed on as like an uncredited producer and sort of helped in post and helped him figure out the action sequences and was kind of there as like a helping hand throughout the whole process. And the movie is an Amblin, uh, Amblin Entertainment Presents, which yeah. was, this was the first R-rated movie that Amblin ever released. Mm-hmm. Really, speaking of reverse shots, too, there's a really great shot of Lee, Jessica Lange's character, like pushing herself up from the mud 
and it's really eerie and creepy looking and it is a reverse shot that's part of what makes it creepy is they had her start up look around and then lay down in the mud with her face on it knowing he was going to reverse it mm. to add a sense of eeriness to it and it truly does they've all kind of been baptized in a way you know to bring it back to the religious allegory that we were talking about earlier ultimately nature steps in in a pretty significant way at the end of this movie that makes me feel like it's hand of god kind of implications yeah those reading those readings kind of bum me out because it, it takes all agency out of the hands of the characters and i think this particular story shines because of the quality of putting yourself in the shoes of someone who has to do something that they they don't know if they're right. ever if they're going to be able to do it and so for nick nolte to get to that sort of animalistic state yeah. at uh -huh. the end of the movie where he's literally like <laughs> yeah growling like an animal and he has the rock and he's about to take it down onto max katie's head he essentially killed him like he yeah. was going to, yes, for sure. He he got to the point. The point was for the for the writers or the act of God, whatever yeah. you want to say. Mm -hmm. Get this man to the breaking point mm -hmm. where he does find it within himself to commit yeah. the ultimate. You know, it's the. I agree. I think it's way more interesting that way too. Then because I mm -hmm. wasn't thinking watching this, I was not thinking like, oh, God saved him from having to do it or whatever i mean i guess maybe i just don't view things that way because i was like oh it's like just kind of like luck that that it pulled him out that he didn't have that he got released yeah. from actually having to murder him but it felt like oh this family kicked his fucking ass you know like they yeah. they came together to deal with this situation and so mm -hmm. they I all was work together yeah mm -hmm. But ultimately, and, that moment is very much that, you know, uh, he is protected in some way, like, because if he did kill Max Katie, then that's another thing that would maybe haunt him. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, but he it, did kill Max Katie because he tied Max Katie to yeah. the boat. So, like, that's still it. Like, the only reason why Max yeah. Katie got pulled out is because the boat. But more out, importantly, which... whether or not he killed him is irrelevant. Your point about haunted, he's still going to be haunted by Max yes. Katie. Oh, I mean, this family is fucked. And it Especially... makes a point of that. There's that moment where he's washing the blood off of his hands and then he looks at his hands again and he gets startled by something. And it's kind of hard to tell exactly what it is. But to me, it's a, I interpret it as like, mm -hmm. he's never going to be free of this fear yeah i thought that was a that more again that's the what was the word that we used in other episodes like the um the flourish the free what is free can say? oh yeah a grace note the grace that's a grace note and it's yeah. such a good note it's such a small moment that may have not made it into the film but I, that was another one i rewound two or three yeah. times just to experience just to that moment mm -hmm. again and to understand why he did that and i think i came away from it like that's him snapping out of the animal and back like he he had an, yeah. a, an animal yeah. took over and and but he's behind the animal watching the whole time yeah. mm -hmm. not in control and then he comes back and he's like Oh, yeah, so. to me, it's it's a little bit like the ending of Deliverance, you know, when John Voight has the dream of the hand floating up over the water and he wakes up and startles. It's like basically doing that ending, but like right after the climax rather mm -hmm. than like crossfading to something, you know, it's just to represent that like they can try all they might to never talk about this again and forget it. But like he's always going to have that lingering jump of stuff. This is another movie, Corman style, that ends like right after the villain is, mm -hmm. is kill, kill your monster and then end the movie. But I do think like if you end the movie too soon after that, it's not quite as effective. Yeah. I will say I missed one aspect of the book and that was 
them kind of I, I, you do kind of want to see them processing or digesting this you mm-hmm. know yeah it doesn't make the movie worse it's just the book indulges in that curiosity there's of like, like a well, cute little scene at the end at the yeah. beach right yeah it was fun yeah and and there was a fun in the book too of like they really home alone this guy in the in the book yeah like they really work together to do it although completely uns- the way he dies in the book is so unsatisfying lame so he shoot, he run so will uh nick nolte's character basically is far away from the house and hears screaming and hears gunshot and so in, in his attempt to get off of his chair and get over to the building where they're staging this whole thing trap he falls down a ladder and like twists his ankle so he's like behind and then he hobbles over regains his strength and right as he's getting up to the door of the house max katie bursts outside and sam fires a couple shots but like Max at Kate, him at yeah, him, as he's running away w- w- no mention of if it hits or anything uh-huh. katie runs away and he's gone and then and he goes back inside and he realizes that he's like max katie has nearly raped his wife but not quite and has does he he doesn't kill Kursik, he just like wounds Kursik, right or no Kursik does die doesn't Kursik he? dies in the hospital later he dies yeah. later basically he's gone in and just like bludgeoned everybody um and then literally it's like the police started looking for katie and then they found him in the woods and he had like he, he had dead. been shot and he, he had died to death. on his way to his getaway vehicle basically so disappointing yeah. and so the movie has a disappointing one too where it's like he catches him and he puts a gun on him and he's basically no, katie, like <laughs> you're gonna pay for what you've done you're going to jail yeah it's just like oh, and mitchum makes like fucking two lame. lame attempts to like try to get at him <laughs> it's like arbitrary he's just yeah oh. So but it bad. sounded like yeah. they were they were pulled towards how to in this one because they didn't know if they should have Sam kill him or not. And they kind of they're getting a little bit of the best of both worlds. Like he was definitely going to. Yeah. You, but nature sort of steps in, and prevents him from doing it very much like uh, Abraham, the book of Abraham in the Bible. He has to kill his he's told by God to, to sacrifice his own son. And right as he's about to do it, like an angel comes and says, like, God knows now that you're willing to do it. You don't have to sacrifice yeah. your son. It's perfect because then without that, uh, we a head smash wouldn't have been satisfying. Mm-mm. And yeah. instead, we get the slow drown oh, of God. And when I see this ending, especially in the way that he joins his family, mm-hmm. I, I just get a very haunting sense that, like, they're... It's it's they're not coming out of no, this. No, I just see a broken. I, I just see a broken yeah. family. I do agree with that because her her final, even in like her um, her final thing where she says, "We never spoke about what happened, at least not to each other." Fear, I suppose, that to remember his name or what he did would mean letting him into our dreams. And me, I hardly dream about him anymore. Still, things won't ever be the same the way they were before. But that's all right, because if you hang on to the past, you die a little every day. For myself, I know I'd rather live. The end. The end. So yeah, it seems kind of wrong. Oof. Like by not talking about it and just choosing to not acknowledge it. Oh yeah, it's gonna haunt doesn't them seem like now. the right move. Yeah, no. <laughs> go to, to therapy, family guys. Therapy yeah, together. you need to go to therapy. Talk this through. Yeah, it's not gonna be good to repress it. Oh, but. Isn't that what the doctor said, digging up the past? (laughs) 
<laughs> he's like a gremlin. A straight. He's the. He he's is kind the of a gremlin. Nick Nolte was gremlin. Nick Nolte was people's sexiest man alive. I believe in 1992. The he is pretty sexy in this movie. He lost a bunch of weight because he's technically way bigger than De Niro, and so in order to try to sell that more, De Niro packed on as much as he could, and and uh, Nick Nolte lost as much as he could. So that's why he's like kind of extra skinny in this. Because if you look at a movie that came out around this time, Q and A, the Sidney Lumet movie, he's fucking Frankenstein huge in that. Frankenstein's monster. That is. Don't come for me, folks. I understand. Doctor Frankenstein is not the monster. Anyways, <laughs> it's the end of Cape Fear. <laughs> Woo-hoo! Let's take one more break, and we'll be right back to talk final thoughts on Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Cinema Possess, and we are talking final thoughts on 1991's Cape Fear. Justin, starting with you today. I had a blast with this one. I read the book on the plane immediately after I watched the 62 mm-hmm. Cape Fear. Had a blast with that one. Lots of fun stories about that movie, too, worth looking into. Then I watched this movie, and I, as I told you, I was worried that I would think it was too silly now. Mm. You know, our tastes have changed. We've grown older. We've lived life. You know, we've yeah. laughed. We've loved. We've lost. We've <laughs> cried. Right. Would I still think this movie Slaps. holds up in the same way you showed me when we were when we were we but twenty year olds, <laughs> you know? And uh, I didn't know the answer when I when I when I chatted with you the other day, and I and I know now <laughs> that um, I understand why I had those hesitations because I do think there's a lot of goofiness in the movie. Yeah. But it just works. Mm-hmm. And like you said in the beginning, you don't want every movie to be like this. But you're sure damn glad that this movie exists. Mm-hmm. I think with all the all the goofiness aside, there's important themes in the movie. It makes you think about what would you do in that scenario? And I find that to be the most compelling thing a movie can make me do. What would I do if this was happening to me? And it's truly scary because I can't come up with a lot of good answers. Yeah. And I, and I know that the, the system would, would still fail us today in 2023. Mm -hmm. So that's just the, philosophical sort of aspect of the movie then there's the roller coaster ride of the movie and it's a fucking fun ride and it's just it's a rickety wooden roller coaster but it's (laughs) it's got 
dips and turns and drops. And I think the filmmaking is incredible. I don't think it's, it's anything that Scorsese should be embarrassed about. This shouldn't be omitted from his catalog. It's just as great as any of the other of his greats. And, um, yeah, if I, um, I had to stream the movie, unfortunately, because I'm uh, away, but I, I do have the DVD at home. So I think this is a keeper. I mean, this is a movie that I would actually want to rewatch again and again and again, just for how did they do that? How did mm-hmm. he edit that? How did he shoot that? There's things that I know you and I are going to want to bring into our work, still going to want to bring into our work, even though our a lot of our tastes and preferences have changed over the years. I think there's a lot to learn from this movie and I miss playfulness in movies. I miss when a movie could be dead serious, hard R, talking about really intense themes and still have a sense of humor and still have a playfulness in the style. Mm-hmm. And I think we need more movies like that today. 100% agree. I mean, I agree with everything Justin just said. If you've never seen this movie, the like the every man coming in to watch this movie, you're going to have a fucking blast, I think. I mean, I guess there are people who would think this is silly. But to me, if you're just like along for the ride for a fun time at a movie, like it will make you think really intense things. There are some gruesome aspects to this movie, but it is I mean, a thriller is my favorite genre. I think thriller is my favorite type of movie to go see. And it delivers on every part of that. Mm-hmm. It feels exactly like Justin said, a rickety wooden roller coaster in the best way. Like this is at the state fair and you are having a good time, even though it's messy and scary and you might get food poisoning in parts. You're you're excited to be on that sugar rush. I think the acting in this movie is incredible. De Niro's incredible. Nick Nolte's incredible. Jessica Lange's incredible. Juliette Lewis is incredible. And all every other side character in it, the 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 heightened levels of it make the um the fun of the ride even more exciting. Mm. And um I've seen this movie countless times since we've been together and i uh expect to watch it countless more i just piggyback on all that not only do i think that people who discount this movie from scorsese's filmography are just completely wrong and misguided i will go out on a limb and say that there are a lot of days where this is my favorite scorsese movie Mm -hmm. there's a lot of days where this is my favorite de niro performance i think this is probably my favorite Nick Nolte performances, and I love Nolte. I think he's great in everything. There's definitely part of me that wants to stick up for it more because it's hated. Not because it's hated, but because it's trashed a little bit. So that makes me like feel a, a defensiveness towards it. And I'm a defender of genre movies, and I love the idea of our great filmmakers trying their hand at genre. And Steven Spielberg's tried his hand. He came up in genre, so nobody would bat an eye if Steven Spielberg makes a great genre movie. But when Scorsese makes a great genre movie, people want to kind of like disregard it. And I think that's ridiculous because there's no difference to me between making a great boxing movie or making a great gangster movie or making a great religious epic and making a great thriller. You know, those are all those are all genres. They're all genres. So there's, it's not, I think it's pretentious to think that the thriller is lower tier. Um, 
And if you don't see that this is Scorsese flexing all of his Scorsese muscles, then you don't know the man and his work well enough. So um, I love the film, and um, I'm glad I have the, the Blu-ray of it. The Blu-ray doesn't have a great cover. I wish it. I prefer the cover of the DVD I used to have, but I have the best quality of it, and I love it. And I hope to one day own a projector in a screening room, and this will be the first one I get on 35 millimeter to project this thing, so I can have a big screening with all my friends. <laughs> uh, you know and- who? You know who finds this mo- the, this movie silly? People who watch movies on their phone, like who watch a movie while they're on their phone yeah. the mm-hmm. whole time. Yeah. Because then you miss you miss what you need to contextualize the whole experience. It's mm-hmm. more than just a series of extreme over the top moments. You need the whole thing yeah. from beginning to end to really put yourself in in this family situation. Mm-hmm. PSA, don't watch movies while you're Please. on your phone. Please. Please. You could watch a movie on your phone. I don't love that, but I'll accept it. But don't watch a movie on your TV <laughs> while on your while phone. you're yeah. on your own phone. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that. Well, now that we've said everything there is to say about Cape Fear, and because Cape Fear is a yuppie in peril film, what do you say we play the yuppies in peril quiz? That's right. The Yuppies in Peril Quiz. Name these Yuppie in Peril films based on their vicious villains. Bonus points if you can name both the actor and the title. Uh. So I will describe the character, the villain of the film. You have to tell me the title of the film, but you get a bonus point if you can tell me who played the character. Question number one. Alex Forrest is a woman scorned who terrorizes a married man after a one-night stand. Fatal Attraction. Um, Glenn Close. Ding, ding, ding. Two points for Corey. Very good, very good. Okay. Question number two. Carter Hayes is the tenant from hell. Corey, um, Michael Keaton, Pacific Heights. Ding, 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 ding. That was suspicious. (laughs) Well, it's funny because when he said yuppie, movies we recently watched that movie again and i thought he's that's definitely gonna be on it and i just have been sitting here thinking what the fuck is that movie called what the fuck is that movie called? again <laughs> why did me. you rewatch it because it's really good you, it's really fun i didn't uh, think you liked it when oh. Corey's mom was in town we were looking for a oh fun i really liked it i loved pacific heights great one matthew Very modine fun. who's mm-hmm. the who's the girl in that melanie griffith melanie griffith that's right yeah it's good okay they're going to get harder from here, folks. So get, awesome. your, <laughs> get your yuppie nightmare hats on. Eddie Otis is a homicidal hedonist who convinces his next door neighbor to partake in a secret wife swap in order to frame him for murder. Oh, I know what this is. Um, oh, my God. Do you recognize that plot line at all, Justin? Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, because I've never watched it with you. uh, I can't think of who it is, though. Convinces his next-door neighbor to partake in a secret wife swap in order to frame him for murder. 
Is Kevin Spacey the guy? Ding, ding, ding. Kevin okay. Spacey is the guy. Ugh, I don't. I'm never going to know the name of the movie. It's good, though. Consenting Adults. Never seen it. It's it's not good, but it's very fun. <laughs> Kevin Klein. Kevin, plays. Spa- Kevin, Kevin Spacey. Spacey Kevin Klein. Kevin yeah. Spacey is Psycho- a psychopath. Psychopath. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big surprise. Clues all along. Mm-hmm. Okay, so five points for Corey. Zero points for Justin. Wow. <laughs> Question number four. Charlie Peck is a whacked out widower who sells his dream home to an unsuspecting newlywed couple and won't leave. De- Corey, Dennis Quaid is the guy. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Justin, we saw this in theaters together. Dennis Quaid yeah. is the guy, and the movie is called... Justin the Intruder. Ding, ding, ding. Nice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why did we go see that? It For my Jack's birthday. birthday. <laughs> Wait, did we already work with Dennis Quaid at that yeah, point? Yeah, we had worked with him at that point. So we wanted to see, support him. The movie looked fun. It just and looked it was like fun. a fun, silly yeah. movie. We knew what we were getting into. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming home with a poster for that movie. You did. Night. It was you, no. me, Justin, and Barry, I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's who it was. Okay, so six to one, Corey's lead. Question number five. Officer Pete Davis is a nut job with a badge who befriends a married couple after responding to a break-in, then schemes to destroy their marriage. Corey, um... <laughs> Corey's it's, killing it. Um, Kurt Russell. <laughs> oh, he's the Kurt husband. Kurt Russell's the, the husband. Oh. Who is the nut job with a badge? Oh, it's um. <sighs> Fuck, who is it? I can like kind of see a blurry image of them. I'll give you a hint. He's a Scorsese actor. He's a Scorsese. Ray Liotta. Oh yes, it is Ray Liotta. <laughs> Ray Liotta. Now, can you name the film? Ray Liotta and Kurt Russell in... Does it start with a B? No. E, extreme... Extreme... Uh, nope. Not extreme measures. Well, desperate measures is what you're... Well, there's another I, one called yeah. extreme measures, too. What's it called? I haven't, I haven't seen this. Unlawful movie. entry. Ooh, that's one's and fun. And that one is really good. I love I a yuppie. Th- yeah, out. you gotta check that, that one one's out really for sure. Good. You know Ray Liotta plays a great psycho. <laughs> yeah. You know he plays a great psycho. Okay. Kurt Question. Russell kind of has the Nick Nolte like can't protect his fucking family vibe too in that movie. Yes. Or where yes. you're like, what? It's about emasculation too. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Okay. Question number six. Now, this one might be a race. Because <laughs> I know you both have seen this one. I'm feeling slow tonight. <laughs> Dr. Jed Hill is a sinister surgeon with a god complex who Justin, conspires. Alec Baldwin, Malice. <laughs> Alec Baldwin what? Malice. Malice. Say the rest of the question because I don't remember this movie. Jed Hill is a sinister surgeon with a god complex who conspires to upend the lives of a young couple after a botched surgery. I don't remember that movie at You all. say I have a god complex? I am God. Nicole Kidman? You've seen it. I don't remember. Yeah. Nicole Kidman? Mm-hmm. Oh. And who is the guy? Is it Spader? It's not Spader, is it? If it was Spader, we would remember, dude. That's true. <laughs> it wasn't Spader. Okay, final question. Justin has three points. Corey has six points. Maybe seven points. I think I have seven. This final question <laughs> is worth six points. <laughs> 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 
Okay. Final question. Cy Parrish is a deranged department store worker who begins to fantasize that he's part of the family he develops photos for. Justin, Robin Williams, one-hour photo. Ding, ding, ding! Justin wins the Yuppie in Peril quiz! (laughs) I am the Lord, and the Lord said, I am the winner! (laughs) And that, my friends is the show. Follow us on social media at Cinema Possessed Pod, where we announce next week's movie ahead of time. And if you want to get in touch with us, email us at cinemapossessedpod at gmail.com. And if you want to get even more possessed, head on over to patreon.com slash cinemapossessedpod and unlock the Cinema Possessed bonus materials. Those are our bi-monthly bonus episodes where we talk about more than just what's in our collection. Plus, you'll gain exclusive access to Patreon-only giveaways and community message boards. Don't forget, folks, to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Leave those reviews. We love to see them, and we need to see them. And as always, keep watching the movies you love, and stay possessed. Later! Bye! The uh, uh, husband in Malice is Bill Pullman, by the way. Pullman! Oh! Oh, That's why we couldn't remember him. R.I.P.? No, he's he's alive. He's just just boring. Say say, say goodbye, Justin. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) 